0: Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. Uh, this week, we're talking about 1928, maybe the last silent year. Kind of crazy. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I mean, debatable. Well, there, there, there's asterisks on everything we do. Anyway, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist. Joining me, as always, is.
1: I'm Glenn Cobell. I'm a filmmaker.
0: And uh, joining us for the first time as a guest?
2: Uh, that's me. I'm Cody Jackson. Hi. Filmmaker, uh, pension profiler, and all around New York City. Try hard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. Walk that's what here. it says on your resume. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thanks, thanks for being here.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining. Uh, We're really really excited to hear what you have to say. We're going to be bringing you back at the end of the show, or or at some point during the show, for uh, Joan of Arc. Uh, But before we get to do all that, let's uh, do a little uh, housekeeping here. Uh, First off... If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you can see all three of our lovely faces right now. We don't know exactly what we're going to be doing. Uh, uh, maybe some clips and that kind of thing since 1928 is the first year that we're dealing with that is no longer public domain. But at least you can see our smiling faces. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast, you're not missing anything. Uh, it's all... <laughs> it, po- there's no rules in podcast land. Exactly. Uh, but, so you know, you have either option. Uh, but before we get started, welcome Cody to the show. Uh, and uh, why don't we all, uh, what's, what's going on with everybody? What, what, are y'all, what are y'all up to?
1: It's hot in New York City.
0: Hmm. Is it still looking like Dune out there?
1: Uh, no, thankfully, it doesn't look like Dune anymore, or Blade Runner 2049. But uh, it is still uh, hot and gross.
0: I am getting ready to run Oppenheimer on film. Uh, great in a week
1: what what Ooh. format you run on that on
0: um... it's going to be 35 millimeters oh, boring <laughs> only 35 of them i know yeah no
1: 15 perf imax
0: there is not a single 15 perf imax projector in the state of colorado
1: <laughs> damn so You gotta get one of those up on red rocks that would be that's the way to do it
0: that'd be sweet we actually just played top gun maverick at red rocks and because it was released in after it came out in a format that was uh, being able to kind of capture both the IMAX aspect ratio and the cinemascope aspect ratio that the movie was released otherwise, we kind mm. of had an IMAX experience with the screen uh, changing shape and all of that. That's so cool. So that's the closest thing we get. uh Cody what uh, what have you been up to how what's what's going on in your life?
2: Oh my gosh, Aside from the job that pays money. Uh, I've been um, working on a new short film about uh, homelessness in New York uh, that I'm kind of enthused about. I just finished my latest draft on that, and I'm going to start trying to figure out possible grants or fund uh, raising for it so I can hopefully shoot it next year. Uh, And I'm developing a couple other screenplays in my spare time. Beyond that, I'm like Glenn, man. I'm dealing with the heat. I have a cat. He has one eye, and he eats up a lot of my attention.
0: One eye and one mouth for attention, for attention <laughs> yes. eating.
2: <laughs> yes. And uh, beyond that, I've been on a pretty good kick of watching new movies, or at least, you know, new movies to me. Glenn cracked my, uh, what do you, he, he showed me Deep Rising the other day, or huh? one.
1: Deep Rising. <laughs> Hang on. We got to scratch this it's, entire episode deep? and just talk about Deep Rising now.
0: That's the uh, that's the oil tanker that leaked, right?
1: No, that's Deepwater Horizon. <laughs> Deep Rising is a uh, a monster movie directed by Steven Sommers of the Mummy fame. Mm. It's a movie he made right before the Mummy, and it rules.
2: It really does, though. Needlessly good character actors getting murdered in more and more creative ways in a submarine they shouldn't be in fits nicely into the Steven Sommers genre of white people go where they shouldn't and white people die brutally. <laughs> It's a great yeah. genre. My favorite.
0: We all know that white people shouldn't be in submarines or, or any
1: <laughs>
2: Topical.
0: I think what we'll do at this point is hop into the news and we'll say goodbye to Cody for now. And then uh, we'll bring him back again uh, to talk about Joan of Arc. But for now, Glenn, why don't you give us a little context for the news of the year uh, of 1928.
1: The news of the year, 1928. Leon Trotsky is arrested and then exiled from the Soviet Union. The ancient city of Ugarit is rediscovered in Syria. The United Kingdom lowers the voting age for women from 30 to 21. The first machine-sliced and machine-wrapped loaf of bread is sold in Missouri. Scottish physician Alexander Fleming accidentally discovers the antibiotic penicillin. The iron lung is used for the first time in Boston. Lights of New York is the first all-talkie feature film. And, uh, yeah, not a lot of super famous news from 1928.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like Trotsky's big and penicillin's big. <laughs> right, and
1: sliced bread. When people say the best thing since sliced bread, they're yeah. talking about post-1928. We didn't so. end
0: up watching Lights of New York, but let's not, I don't know. It's a thing. Yeah,
1: it it does feel like a weird one to skip because of that very notable thing about it but it's like i don't know the fact that it's not talked about anywhere is for me kind of incentive to watch it but at the same time it's like no one talks about this movie is it bad i don't know it
0: might be yeah i mean i feel like something that's like oh my god the jazz singer we've got to make our own talking movie quick uh yeah it might not be that good Maybe someday we'll watch it.
1: Yeah, like many things on this show, it's like I want to go back and watch all the things that we skipped.
0: <laughs> well, that's for the Patreon, baby. That's right.
1: The non-existent, probably never-existent Patreon.
0: I did have a friend tell me that uh, that she would that if we made a Patreon, she would uh, you know donate to it or whatever.
1: I mean, hey, that's what five bucks a month—that's something. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should do it. I don't know. If if you're listening to this and you want to pay us money for other weird side episodes, let us know.
0: Yeah, and the money will go to funding the video content that we need and yeah. uh and video editing and all that kind of thing. Editing software. Yeah, we're not we're not
1: know. just going to like pocket it and pay for sandwiches. I mean, I I need some sandwich money, but um yeah. If if we had a Patreon it would go towards making go, the show. Go to sandwich.com
0: to give Glenn a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh let's start off with some short films. One week, one real time. Indeed.
1: Some interesting and notable ones?
0: Yeah, uh, maybe it's some quite notable ones. Yeah, it's quite. Should we
1: well Let's start with the more interesting but less notable one. Yes, I think, good plan. Which is The Life and, and Death of 9413, A Hollywood Extra. Mm-hmm. Directed by Robert Flory. Jean Fleury, Valjean. <laughs> directed by Robert Flory and Slavko Vorkapic?
0: Vorkapic, Vor- I think. Um, And yeah, Vorkapic is like, I think, pretty big in the avant-garde film world.
1: Yeah, I get the sense he's sort of, he is a filmmaker, but he's kind of more on the, like, theory, like, theoretical side of things. Hmm. Whereas Flory is kind of the more meat and potatoes kind of director. Hmm. But they're both credited as director on this, and I think both have, like, said in interviews later that, like, oh, no, like, this was a, a team effort. This is a, a what's referred to as an avant-garde short film, which hmm. I agree with. I think... Yeah. I think Manhattan was also called that and I was like, oh, it's just a bunch of buildings. I don't know how avant garde that is. Whereas this feels like it's really going some places and like trying some stuff.
0: Yeah, this this feels like a movie that you know, this, this feels like an avant garde movie. This feels yeah. like an experimental film that you'd see in college or at a museum or something like that. Yeah.
1: This feels ahead of its time, I think. It did make me think of movies I saw in college. Um, if I had seen this in college, I would have been very impressed and I would have wanted to work with whoever had made it. I would have been like, This guy. This guy knows what's up.
0: <laughs> I mean, this movie, uh, I kinda think like here here's the thing. I was watching this movie and going like, Ugh, this is so cliche. Uh but then also this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it w- might not have been cliche for, at the time.
1: <laughs> no, I think I think the reason why it reads as cliche now is because it kind of I don't know if it set a standard, but it's it's an early example of a lot of things that we associate now with like avant garde film.
0: But also, not um. even that. I think I, I like the subject matter is is what was bothering me, which I yes. have I really have no reason for that because. <laughs> Because I'm just like, oh, I've heard this, like, Hollywood will chew you up and spit you out thing before, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Hollywood was pretty new then.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, even, th- like, that entire... So, yeah, this, is, this movie is like a, uh, a sort of dark satire of Hollywood, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, already... In... I mean, we had movies about, you know, the film industry chewing people up back when the film industry was New Jersey. Yes. Um, so it's like, this is not a new concept by any means. Um, and yeah, I think the subject matter is not necessarily, is not the most interesting or like radical thing about this. It's all about just the way in which it, the style, uh, yeah, the style, how it gets those ideas across visually. There's, I think there's no real traditional intertitles in this. It's all like shadow puppet text. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A lot of stuff that was so cool like made like using either in-camera effects or funky lighting or cut out paper to make text appear on text and shapes and imagery appear on yeah. screen in really interesting and unique ways
1: a lot of, a lot of shadows a lot of miniatures like shadow puppet stuff but mm-hmm. with like lights that are kind of moving behind the screen i, I once again we're in the the realm of How interesting is this just to describe visuals of something?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, you know, all what it comes down to is that, like, yeah, it's a guy who is trying to be an extra. It's, like, using this very kind of uh, iconic uh, uh, archetypical storytelling to say, like, this one's an extra, this one's a star, you know, he has a star on his forehead. And, uh, and he's credited as just the symbol, the symbol star, which is pretty fun, I think. (laughs)
3: Uh,
0: And then the main character, 9413, uh, has this also written on his head, all the extras are written on their head. So it's kind of getting into this kind of, you know, way that people are turned into numbers and exploited and all this kind of stuff.
1: Man, actors being exploited in Hollywood, that isn't topical at all to when we're recording this <laughs> even a little bit crazy this is being recorded during the joint wga and sag after strike if you either didn't know or are listening to this at a later date uh yeah there's a lot of like the text on screen which is in this sort of really cool like expressionist shadow like uh stencil cutout thing mm-hmm. it's like they will just say like dream success no casting today hollywood um <laughs> it's it's very on the nose but it's it's uh i don't know it's kind of creating this like nightmare vision of hollywood i guess i don't know i dug it i thought it was really cool no yeah i
0: i thought it was really cool too i mean i i again like it's it's a little cliche it's a little on the nose uh but if you put that stuff aside and it's like your first time kind of Encountering the idea of Hollywood being an an impersonal machine that that uh, makes people suffer and die, then uh, and you haven't seen the movie Babylon, uh, then <laughs> then yeah, I I don't know. If you put all that aside, I think that what is going on in this movie, what the main thing the movie is, which is this kind of experimental visual splendor stuff, it's real cool. I yeah. I, I think there's a lot of really neat imagery in this movie and it's very short so it's worth it's worth checking yeah. out
1: so i just watched this movie right before we recorded and i was speed reading the wikipedia page and there was so many fun details in there that i think both give the movie context but also just because this was a fairly low budget independent production there are a lot of details in there that reminded me of what making low budget independent movies is like hmm. like um this movie was shot at like people's houses um is shot partially in Robert Flory's kitchen. The director of photography for this movie, Greg Tolland, went on to shoot Citizen Kane, a little movie you may have heard of. And uh, even though this was this was like a low budget movie, they they had one light that was 400 watts that they used. They had two lights, but one of them broke. And uh, all of the film they used, all the film stock was uh discarded ends from other productions. That uh, Robert Flory had to like tape together in the dark and then like spool back into the film can. Wow, that's awesome! <laughs> and uh, Robert Flory was born in Paris and started his film career as an assistant to Louis Feuillade, a guy we've talked about mm. at length. So it should um, be Robert Flory, uh, maybe. Um, he later became the publicity director for Douglas Fairbanks which is kind of how he got this movie made. Douglas Fairbanks, I don't know if he actually paid for it, but he kind of helped a lot of the production along, kind of helped produce it. He like helped him, all the old ends of film stock were taken from a a Douglas Fairbanks production. Um, He kind of helped him like get uh, editing bays and stuff to cut the movie on, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not, he wasn't coming at this, like, as a complete outsider, like, he knew Douglas Fairbanks, who was, like, the king of Hollywood in the 20s, so mm-hmm. it's, like...
0: And Louis Fiad, the king of France yeah. in the 10s. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's There still, might like, have been an actual king of France in the 1910s. I think
1: there, I think there was. I think... We've been focusing so much on, like, the big important movies of the decade, and so many of those are these, like, massive productions that cost millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the few things that I think we've watched, at least recently, for the show that is, like, really, really tiny and is made by, like, a handful of people for very little money. Um, it's just cool to see from this time period, because I feel like it's not what I really associate with it, and it's, like, a kind of a fun artifact of, like, what else was happening.
0: Yeah. I mean we'll we'll talk later about another movie that involves the democratization of filmmaking.
3: Mm. Uh
0: but that's not our transition. First we got to talk about another short film.
1: Yeah. Maybe the most famous short film of the decade.
0: So is it the big daddy of this episode? <laughs>
1: it kind of is, which is weird cuz it's the movie itself is like so I don't know. Small are you about silly. to are you about to
0: badmouth Steamboat Willie? Is that what I you're probably doing? Probably, yeah.
1: Yeah. We're talking about Steamboat Willie directed by Walt Disney, the first appearance of uh one Mickey Mouse. One Michael Mouse. One Michael Entertainment Mouse. <laughs>
0: uh yeah, this movie, I mean, I'm sure we've both seen this before.
1: I don't know if I'd seen it all the way through before. I definitely seen oh, wow. clips. It's
0: not long. Many, many millions of people have seen at least a very small part of this movie because right. uh, they are now playing it in the as the Disney logo, so that uh, Disney can keep Mickey Mouse as a trademark instead of a copyright. So trade, and because trademark, uh, mm. because trademark doesn't exist, or God, because trademark doesn't <laughs> oh? expire. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's all this legal. <laughs> trademarks <mumbo-chumbo>. are <laughs> I don't believe in trademarks.
1: Yeah, so we talked last episode about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, who was mm-hmm. Walt Disney's sort of cartoon character creation. And uh, he made those for the studio, and the studio technically owned the rights to Oswald because they own the cartoons. And so he was like, fine, I'm going to go make my own cartoon company with a mouse instead of a rabbit and thus and
0: blackjack.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and thus uh the most famous cartoon character in the world was born. Most iconic, maybe not most famous, but yeah, it's like Mickey Mouse is you can draw three circles and be like Mickey Mouse, I know what that is. Yeah. Um and there's like a whole country in Florida built off of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Yes. Uh
0: this was also co-directed by o- Ub Eworks. I've never known how to say his name, uh. But we'll go he with was, ub. yeah. His name is Ub Ub Iworks.
1: How else would you say it?
0: Ub, ub, Oob.
1: ub. U-B. <laughs> um, <laughs> Listen here, ub.
0: Uh, but he was a uh a like critical um critical component of early Disney animation. Like one of the great original animators. Uh I believe that the Oswald short that we did last year was almost like single-handedly animated by him. Mm-hmm. Uh so got to got to shout him out as well. Yeah. Speaking of the production, this was not the first Mickey Mouse cartoon that was ever made. Yeah. Uh but it was the first one that was released. Uh it was released it was, in late I think it was the
1: third one made.
0: It was, yes. Yeah. And one of the previous two came out later this year uh which is a douglas fairbanks kind of pastiche parody and then there's another one called plain crazy that came out in the next year uh even though it was produced earlier and that one was originally produced silent and then they added sound afterward Mm -hmm. uh but maybe we'll get to that one next
1: week this was i think directly inspired by the jazz singer disney was like we gotta put we gotta make sound cartoons now it's what Mm -hmm. the world wants and so Steamboat Willie is sync sound, but there's no real dialogue.
0: No. And I mean, it's getting at this kind of like cartoony, you know, anim- like the cartoons yeah. don't talk kind of thing.
1: Well, so the parrot does talk. I thought it was gibberish, but then I realized it is dialogue. I just couldn't understand what he was saying.
0: Oh, I just thought it was gibberish.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is actually saying things, but it's like, even knowing what he's supposed to be saying, it's still like, I don't know. That still sounds like squawks to me. <laughs> yeah, it's also the fact that this is a like 100 year old you know optical sound recording right it's like it's not it's not the best quality so maybe it was a little maybe it was a little sharper when it first uh first came out yeah
0: uh but this um so this being the first sound cartoon uh it is very much like Look at all the sound that we can do. It's all yeah. about music and singing and showing off that horn that like whistles on a boat can go off in time with uh, mm-hmm. with the whistle sound effect. And what this is effectively is a uh, jam session. Uh, the whole the whole movie is is Mickey Mouse deciding to play some sound and him and Mickey and Minnie jamming using various uh, impromptu instruments.
1: Yeah. It's him playing impromptu instruments in the meanest possible way, because most of the impromptu instruments are live animals that do not want to be played as instruments. (laughs)
0: Yeah. This is... Yeah, this is early A-hole Mickey (laughs) Mickey Mouse.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said about the Oswald short that we watched, it's like, it's surprisingly mean for, like, a Disney cartoon. And I mean that in, like... It isn't just like disney has darkness and all this stuff throughout their entire history of of animated works but yeah mickey is like a real asshole in this short in a way that uh uh somewhat surprised me like the the whole thing felt very mean-spirited to me anyway
0: i don't know it's like it's so cartoony that it's like joyous i think yeah but it's
1: like i don't know it's it's so mean It ends with him throwing a potato at a bird and probably killing it.
0: (laughs) Oh, the bird's fine. It's a cartoon. That's the thing, right? It's like a cartoon. It's cartoon violence.
1: You didn't didn't put the the parrot in dip, so.
0: Yeah. The most notable scene of kind of cruelty or or just kind of uh, risque-ness from this cartoon was part that uh, was not, I think, not initially in it, uh, because people thought like this was going a little too far, which was <laughs> uh, a part uh where he is. So he's playing music, like using these animals, some in more cartoony ways, like uh, spinning a, a a goat's tail as if it's a, mm-hmm. a, a crank on a, on a, a record player. Um, but others in more just kind of literal ways where he just picks up a sow and then starts uh, and starts like, kind of pressing on her many nipples to make the sow (laughs) make different noises
1: (laughs) meanwhile all like all the babies are like crying because (laughs) their mother has been kidnapped and is being played as an instrument
0: yeah they're like yeah they're all they're all drinking milk and then mickey mouse just takes the pig and shakes off all the little piglets (laughs) and then it's like hold on i need an instrument you know (laughs) and that's the thing it's like i don't think all of this is supposed to be mean i don't think it's supposed to like make you go like i
1: i think it's part of this like weird 1920s cartoon thing where it's like it to our eyes feels weird like weird and mean and dark but it's back then it was like no this is all just fun you know it's cartoons playing a, playing i don't know man an instrument it's cartoons it's whatever <laughs> it is but yeah it's like 1920s cartoons have that very specific slightly off vibe to them that i yeah. do like i i like 1920s cartoons and how sort of specific their visuals are and the sort of tone of them but um <laughs> i'm it's still weird to be like oh mickey mouse he's gonna you know Pick up a bunch of animals and play them as instruments against their will.
0: Yeah, I mean, pretty so pretty much all of what this movie is, is um, uh, Mickey Mouse is on a boat, uh, and then he gets yelled at by Pete, who is his boss. A and, mean old boat captain. And uh, and then, I don't know, and then he just kind of walks around and decides to start playing yeah. music, basically. Not, not a
1: super complex story, <laughs> this, this one's uh yeah he plays a bunch of music and then his boss yells at him again and he has to uh go peel potatoes a potato peeling
0: punishment but uh it's a triple alliterative he uh but there is some i I think we're to compare this to other uh like previous disney stuff that we've watched i do think that this is a step up in terms of smoothness and and bounciness of animation yeah uh, and and also just like creative cartoon reality stuff mm-hmm. that I think um you know it's allowing itself to like break from the real world more like I'm thinking specifically of a moment where uh Pete, the boat captain is chewing tobacco. And then uh, when he's trying to spit the tobacco out, his his teeth just kind of like part ways from each yeah. other, like a garage door <laughs> opening or something <laughs> like that. And then he spit and then like a, a a kind of spit blob of tobacco comes right out of the hole in the teeth yeah. and then it closes back up again. And it's like, that's the kind of cartoon stuff that you you want to have. You know, that's yes. what is good about cartoons is that
3: kind yeah. of thing.
1: And I, I really associate that stuff with 20s cartoons also. Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this, uh, the title of this movie, Steamboat Willie, is almost definitely a reference to the song Steamboat Bill, which was uh, popular at the time, and is probably most famous for being the inspiration for the title of this movie, and for our next movie, our first feature of the episode, play the feature presentation song.
3: And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation.
1: Uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., which uh-huh. is another very famous movie from this year. Funny that they both were like, hey, that Steamboat Bill song, great. Let's make a movie about that.
0: I had kind of assumed that uh, Steamboat Willie was a reference to the Buster Keaton movie.
3: Rather it than might a kind of... be. But yeah.
1: they don't really have a whole lot in common other than no. they're the both Steamboat. about Steamboats and there's a mean captain. Yeah. Um, that's about it. Like, it's not really a parody of Steamboat Bill Jr. It was released second. But I I definitely get the sense they're both referencing the same song. Mm-hmm. And that was like a thing back then where
0: songs could become popular via sheet music. Right. <laughs> 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 Did uh, you get that new sheet that just dropped? Yeah. Uh,
1: but this is one of Buster Keaton's most famous movies. I'd never seen this one. Yeah, same. Um, I mean, this one has arguably his most famous stunt in it.
0: Yep, this is the movie with the iconic uh, facade of the house falling down with a hole in it. And Buster Keaton stands in a hole... It uh, stand, stands exactly where the hole is so that it falls down around him.
1: Even though he's already done this at least twice in other movies, which I think we talked about in the one week episode. Right. This gag is also in one week. It's just smaller. Um, it's It's definitely the most impressive version of it because he used like a real house facade that weighed like several tons, I think, and probably <laughs> would have killed him. Had it hit him, he had, like, only a couple inches, like, around him. on Around his mark, like, he had to be exactly on his mark, otherwise this enormous side of a house would have fallen on him. Uh, there's a kind of, like, I think uh, some people at the time theorized he might have been suicidal, and that's why he was, like, yeah, drop a house on me, I don't care. But it's, like, I don't know, that doesn't really square with how Buster Keaton actually operated as a filmmaker. Like, if he was gonna kill himself, he believe he he could have like <laughs> the amount of crazy stuff that he does and also just like he i think he did it like in the middle of production and it's like no he would have done that at the end he would have gotten the movie in the can first. he's a consummate professional he would
0: he would yes. kill himself once the movie's done <laughs> yeah
1: yeah. Uh, i mean buster keaton was definitely prone to depression and alcoholism and all those things but um yeah but he was also I, like just generally
0: a daredevil like yeah. he was, he was generally a he guy. He almost kills who's himself
1: like, in every movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I'm
0: talking about. laughs> it's the only way for him to feel alive. That is during uh, the climax of the movie, which is super, uh, super bombastic. But should give like a general idea of what's going on in this movie. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a combination of the general Blus- Buster Keaton boy meets girl plot with. Uh, the Laurel and Hardy putting pants on Philip
1: in a way. It is. It's funny you mentioned <laughs> that. I was reminded of an even older movie, Algy the Miner, which I think might have been an LSD oh, movie.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is I was like thinking that one
1: too. C- City boy goes to the country and doesn't know what things are.
0: It's very much also like this. It, it felt like queer coding in a lot of ways in this movie.
1: Kind of. Uh, yeah. It's At least like with he, like his dress the way that, that he's perceived i think for sure the pencil he's got a pencil
0: mustache so he's he's in the south uh he's from he's going to college in boston and he comes down to uh meet his dad who he doesn't know very well uh steamboat bill and senior. uh <laughs> steamboat bill senior uh and it's in and so he's on uh, the steamboat stonewall jackson which is another case of buster keaton uh maybe a little callously uh invoking the confederacy (laughs) yeah yeah um but i think what it's meant to be here is this uh sort of oh he's like this is where real men are salt of the earth kind of thing
1: well so steamboat bill senior has the 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 stonewall jackson which is the sort of like old slightly run down steamboat and there's the new fancier more expensive steamboat that just rolled into town Mm-hmm. owned by the king as he's known <laughs> who like owns the whole town seemingly um and so it's sort of the underdog steamboat mm-hmm. um and so then buster shows up as steamboat bill jr and he's you know they they go to the train station to pick him up and they're like oh we got how are we gonna know who he is and he's, he's supposed to have a, a flower on his lapel
0: a white carnation
1: <laughs> and and uh we see everyone getting off the train, they can't see him, and then the train pulls out of the station again, and he's on the other side of the platform, where you're not supposed to get off the train.
0: Right. Assumedly, is, like, because he's so dumb that he didn't yeah. get off the, which off the train.
1: Which is a great reveal, where like the train moves away and you see this weirdo standing on the other side of the tracks.
0: Yeah. And yeah. Um, Pencil mustache, beret, and ukulele. Yeah. Uh, which sig- signal him as, a, uh, as an effete northerner
1: <laughs> yes pretty much uh a, yeah a, a city boy i guess yeah um i think that there's a lot of that in silent film of like the city versus the country kind of and like yeah uh, real real people live in the dirt and live in the country and then it's like all those city people and their fancy hats <laughs> I, don't know, I just find that to be a, a an oddly sort of recurring thing in a lot of silent movies
0: yeah and you speak of the hats, because one of the first things that his dad does, mm. uh, he's like, we got to shave that mustache off first off. And then yeah. we've got to get you a less gay hat, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so they have this extended
1: sequence of Junior trying on dozens of hats, trying to. Which I thought was going to end with him getting his like classic Buster Keaton pork pie hat. <laughs> yeah. But instead they hand that to him like, in the middle and he's like, get that out of here. <laughs> i don't want to see that hat
0: <laughs> that's a really interesting yeah i'm not sure what to make of that but it's, it's, a, it's a, well it's
1: it's a very like self-conscious joke
0: yeah yeah of, like
1: we know what buster keaton's hat is right and then <laughs> to like acknowledge that and make a joke out of it i think is is pretty funny
0: yeah that's good yeah especially because they have like done previous movies where
1: his hat gets squashed or something and it turns into his pork pie hat yeah Yeah.
0: or like he very specifically wants that hat and this one this one's like get it away from me yeah
1: yeah which is a a good gag and it's like acknowledging kind of his like his like iconography almost
3: Mm -hmm.
1: um and then yeah there's a bunch of other hat gags which mr keaton is very good at just trying on hats and making it funny (laughs) yeah
0: and so once all that happens he runs into uh a a lady he knows. Uh from she's college. like from college. And she and she's like what are you doing down here? And he's like my not dad's from the, here.
1: Not from the movie college. No. But
0: <laughs> from the uh from Harvard or wherever he is. Yeah. Uh Is Harvard in Jersey? What's the one in in Massachusetts? Harvard is it Harvard? Harvard. Harvard. Oh, ha- Harvard, yeah, that's right. Um <laughs> So it turns out that the the girl he fancies is the daughter of the rival boatman. <gasps> so we got a, a rival bit of steamboat a, a Romeo and Juliet kind a sort of, of situation.
1: Uh, boat crossed lovers.
0: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's a bit of a love boat. <laughs> <laughs> And and yeah and so there's some some courting hijinks uh, and yeah. the dads don't want them to have anything to do with each other basically. There's
1: a lot of a lot of boat jokes and a lot of uh, courting jokes often at the same time. There's a really great bit where after his sort of makeover, Buster shows up in like his captain's uniform, which is like the closest they can get him to wearing like normal boat clothes. Yeah. is this like ridiculous like naval uniform? <laughs> um that he's like strutting around in to look cool and there's just a really long extended scene of him trying to look really cool and impressive and like tripping over stuff and falling and it's so good it's like the perfect (laughs) example of buster keaton being given just like a floor to work with and making a bunch of jokes that are all very funny
0: yeah yeah and some of this uh Some of this stuff, like, really shows off his athleticism, too, in, like, like, subtle ways of just, like, how he's pulling off these these
1: stunts. He he tries to sneak out of one boat into the other boat, and there's so many, just so much hijinks that comes out of that.
0: Yeah, Um, especially, in particular, one part where he's trying to, like, go on a plank from one boat to the other, which feels, I mean, we keep saying this, like, that Buster Keaton is the the predecessor of looney tunes but it feels Mm -hmm. very looney tunes There's there's a lot of plank stuff in looney
1: tunes (laughs) never seen more planks than in looney tunes (laughs) a lot of plank work (laughs) i mean hey that might have been a whole vaudeville act like i'm a plank guy i bring my plank on the train with me wherever i go (laughs) i mean buster keaton's dad joe keaton was a table act guy where he just had a table that he did jokes with so
0: so his job was tables
1: yeah yeah exactly through various hijinks steamboat bill senior is arrested um he goes to jail and there's a great extended section in the middle of the movie where buster is trying to break his dad out of jail with a loaf of bread that he's snuck tools into and he's like trying to Show his dad that, because his dad doesn't want anything to do with him. He's like, come on, like, take this bread I made for you. And he's like, I don't want your bread. Like, get out of here. Let me be in jail in peace. And he has to keep, like, hinting. He's like, no, like, I really think you should take the bread. Until he opens up the bread and shows that there's a bunch of tools inside. <laughs> and and the, the
0: sheriff is just none the wiser. Yeah. up until Up until... It gets extremely
1: obvious that there are right. tools until, in until the bread. Until he tries to hand the bread over to his dad, and then all the tools spill out the back of the bread in <laughs> in comic fashion. And he said, "Oh, there's a great line, which is like, that must have happened when the bread, when the dough fell that... into the tool chest. Yeah, because <laughs> that explains it. Uh,
0: yeah, that's that's a great. I feel like a uh, surreal joke. Yeah. Like, uh <laughs> Like oh yeah, I baked I baked tools into my bread accidentally. Accidentally, <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I mean, at that point, what other excuse do you have? Uh, but so he breaks his. The dad gets out of prison. Buster ends up in prison, but then a hurricane strikes the town, and we get our big finale. Um, yeah, like most Buster Keaton movies, the last like fifteen minutes of this movie are just like nonstop wild stunts and gags, and it's like
2: it's I do think like that's it.
1: It's a typical thing for him where it's like, all right, we have like a normal comedy movie with like a bunch of funny stuff in it, and then the last fifteen minutes are just absolute bananas, um, and are usually my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah, it's pretty balls to the wall. This one, <laughs> yeah, and this one might take the cake in terms of like how wild it gets, because I mean, it yeah. has like one of his biggest stunts—the like, you know, the wall falling over around him um it has but like it has the whole thing of like he's in a hospital bed that's getting blown through the town by the wind
3: there's yeah. all just the after after the
1: entire the, you know like
0: the entire building lifts off of the floor whereas hospitals. hospital yeah bed exactly is. there is so much destruction in this part
1: it, they basically built a town for this movie and then destroyed it which yeah. is one of my favorite very specific sub of movie which is we built a town and we're going to blow it up on screen um it's great paint your wagon is another one of those the, the other
0: kind of very well-known iconic bit from this part is uh when he the he's kind of facing into the wind and yeah the wind yeah. the super super strong wind and so he's leaning forward into the wind and trying to like push through it or walk yeah. it toward it and he's effectively like moonwalk not moonwalking well the thing that michael jackson does uh that's but... moonwalking no moonwalk not the moonwalk though the thing where michael jackson
1: leans really far down uh, i don't know what that's called yeah i don't it's know called if that the Lean. The name. yeah they had massive uh propellers i'm pretty sure just like blowing wind at him and he
0: must have been like really massive <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it was, like, super massive and dangerous. Every stunt in this is crazy dangerous, but... Um...
0: I mean, because you don't just see wind in the part where, like, he is, or, or like, the certain yeah. thing is. You see wind all over the place, like, things blowing in every direction very forcefully. Yeah.
1: It's... It... There's debris, there's dirt, there's, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a bit where he climbs a tree and the tree gets ripped out of the ground and, like, flies through <laughs> the air while he's with clinging to it yeah while he's like holding on to it it's it's not so it's great yeah yeah and, then, th- and that... then he he saves the the other boat captain and the girl and everyone is happy and then everyone respects him yeah exactly i was a little worried
0: that this movie see like at the beginning of the movie with this whole like um you know he's a wimpy northerner and uh he should be a a strong confederate right and then like (laughs) i I was thinking like oh i hope this movie like doesn't kind of end with him learning that he needs to be uh traditionally masculine or whatever or or like i was thinking it could either end that way or could Mm -hmm. end in a way where um it was kind of legitimizing uh the validity of his way of being before and i think the movie kind of threads the needle between the two he can, yeah. he like stays who he is but he kind of learns to be a little tougher and earns people's respect anyway
1: yeah so i liked the ending of this movie a lot more than the general which is basically what the first thing you described which is like he he like learns to be like a tough soldier man and i'm just like ah gross boring don't like yeah yeah (laughs) um whereas this yeah it's sort of like he yeah he sort of like he is able to like drive the boat but he drives the boat in like his own way because he like ties rope to everything so we can control it all from one spot
0: and it's like he uses his college brain
1: (laughs) yeah exactly like he he does sort of he like solves all these problems in a way that other people wouldn't which is yeah it's just a good it's a better character arc than general i think yeah uh should we move on to the next buster keaton movie that we're talking about
0: double keaton time we filled up a lot of this year with comedies but there were also a lot of big comedies this year
1: yeah and i mean these are two of buster keaton's like most notable movies i think are these two yes yeah uh and this one is the cameraman.
0: Uh, a movie that begins as Nightcrawler and ends as <laughs> Why Don't You Play in Hell. <laughs> uh, that's a take. I can't argue uh-huh. with that. No, you cannot, because it's correct. Yeah.
1: Um. <laughs> this, I think, is one of my favorite Buster Keaton movies. I really like The Cameraman a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: He, co- or at least credited co-director on this, is Edward Sedgwick. The co-directors in all of Buster Keaton movies are kind of like, didn't actually do that much on them, I got the sense. like, Or, like, Buster Keaton didn't like having his credit shared with other people. And he was like, he didn't do anything. Like, a lot of times they would hire a co-director to, like, rein him in. And then he would, like, get them to quit by just, like, annoying them and things like that. Wow. <laughs> but, uh... I think he's worked is... with
0: Edward Sedgwick a good amount before. I think right? so. I
1: don't think this was, like, a super contentious uh, relationship. Um, But this is the last movie we assume about bill jr was buster keaton's last film under the independently run buster keaton productions where it was like his name on the building he didn't really run the company but it was like he had full creative control like this company existed for him to make buster keaton movies Mm -hmm. the company was actually run by uh the producer on all of these um dang what's his name joseph skank Okay. And so that... Steve Bill Jr. was the last movie under that company. That company folded in 1928, and Buster Keaton moved to MGM, which theoretically would have given him way more resources and uh, access to all this stuff. This is the only one where he was given creative control. All Basically all of Buster Keaton's movies after The Cameraman, he is sort of like more of a star or director for hire i haven't seen any of those but i from everything that i've heard or read about them they pale in comparison to his sort of like his run from like 1920 to 1928 is like his movies right where it's like he can do whatever he wants he's doing all this crazy stuff and they're great Mm -hmm. and then the cameraman is the last one where it's like they let him do whatever because i mean a lot of his movies were super expensive and didn't always make money. Like the general didn't make a lot of money. Steamboat bill jr. I think also didn't make a lot of money. Like these were kind of, they weren't flops. I don't think, but they weren't, you know, making their money back. And then some, mm-hmm. so I think the cameraman was another one of those where it didn't make as much money as they hoped. And so MGM was like, all right, like you got to do what we say now. And all those movies from what I hear are way worse. The studio execs. Um, Their meddling yeah. ruins everything. And so, but it's it's kind of, like, sad or disheartening to me. Because, like, I think this movie, The Cameraman, is one of his best. Yeah. And it's like, oh, what, 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 you know, what other things could he have come up with? Like, how much longer would his, like, golden years of career have led to if uh, MGM hadn't been such a taskmaster? I don't know. And I don't this, know how much this... blame I can lay on MGM, but um, it is sort of like, this is like the last like proper Buster Keaton movie. Hmm. Uh,
0: and this movie, uh, you can definitely tell that MGM was involved because it has their <laughs> name all over it. Oh yeah, uh, This movie is about once again, Buster Keaton trying to impress a girl. Uh, he is a tin type photographer uh, tra- hawking his, his uh, services on the street
1: but and... before we see that, there's like this cool montage of like, ah, the cameraman. What a what a romantic job! And it's all this like, mostly real footage of like just people filming stuff. And it's cool, just old footage of people with like hand cranked cameras in different places.
0: Yeah, specifically the newsreel cameraman. They're trying yeah. to hire uh, like highlight as someone who you know goes into war zones to get footage and everything yeah. like that. This movie and. Uh, life of a Hollywood extra life and death of a Hollywood extra. They have like certain very small details about uh, film production at this time that I thought Mm -hmm. were interesting to see Uh, in, in the short um, they show the, at this point, like enormous studio lots that (laughs) uh, had been built. Uh, And this one, it's like a bit more of the business of newsreel production, Mm -hmm. which, which is interesting. And it feels like, (laughs) Nightcrawler.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it also goes to show that, like, oh, yeah, like, the newsreel camera guy hasn't really... The job hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still mostly a freelance gig that people just show up with a camera. and Like, what do you need filmed?
3: What, like, what, what,
1: what what weird accidents can I go to? What, what horrors are happening in front of me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, Buster's character in this is, yeah, like you said, a, a tin-type cameraman. He's trying to just make make a living on the street taking tintype photographs of people and uh he's sort of getting butted out of the way by all the the newsreel men um he gets sort of like packed into a crowd with all these people who are trying to film a parade um and he gets pressed up against this uh this cute lady that's there and he's like this isn't a terrible thing (laughs)
0: He's like, I'm um, in love now.
1: <laughs> so he go he wants to be a newsreel guy, and so he goes to the he goes to MGM to see like how can I get a job as a newsreel guy. And she works at MGM, uh, at, like the front desk, mm-hmm. and she's like kind of giving him pointers, like, hey, just you need to go buy a camera, and then they'll maybe they'll hire you. There's a lot of great door bits throughout this whole movie. Whenever he's yeah. in the office, uh, like the front door the front the window in the front door keeps breaking for various reasons
0: usually not breaking due to him but uh usually due
1: to him but then it's like then he saves it but something else breaks it it's yeah uh get a lot of mileage out of that door. it's a good
0: recurring gag it goes through the entire movie
1: um and so yeah when he shows up to get a job at mgm uh they kind of are like you don't have a a movie camera get out of here i believe one of the lines they say is uh what are you doing? Giving me a sleigh ride? Which I don't know what that means. That's just weird 1920s slang that I have no frame of reference for. But I'm going to start saying it. Yeah,
0: yeah, you What should. are you doing?
1: Giving me a sleigh ride?
0: As soon as he, he trades in his tintype camera for a motion picture camera, he walks yeah. into MGM and all the other cameramen are headed out to go to a fire at a warehouse Mm-hmm. Uh, and he isn't really able to get out of the building in time. They all have rushed to the scene and he's late to the fire, like in Nightcrawler. And, uh, <laughs> I'll stop.
1: Is and Nightcrawler just a remake of the cameraman?
0: M- Maybe. Yeah. It's a dark twisted remake of the cameraman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there is a bit as he, so he asks a cop where the fire is and the cop is like misunderstanding him. uh, at, thinking that he's trying to tell him that there's a fire and then they do this whole big routine which really probably would work better in in voice right uh, it does which kind is, of feel like i kind of it's a who's on first yeah of, of like Stella a bit yeah there's a warehouse a warehouse where's the house which house which yeah. which house the warehouse kind of kind of situation that was an mgm joke maybe yeah <laughs> everything we don't like is mgm um,
1: and uh he he eventually makes it over and starts uh recording stuff when he's still in the office at, M- at mgm before he buys before he trades in his tintype for a movie camera there's this sort of rival cameraman that's also he's a jock making eyes at at the at the girl that he likes um there's a lot of good making eyes in this movie a lot of good sort of like romantic eye catching eyes you know while the rival cameraman is is talking up um the lady she doesn't have a name in this movie right like most silent like leading ladies she's credited as like the girl i think Uh, i don't remember um but uh he kind of leaves his camera to the side and buster goes up and starts opening it up and like Looking at it and figuring out how it works, which I thought was just a cool callback to how Buster Keaton actually learned how cameras worked, which is he he went to a film set one day, didn't know anything about it, someone gave him a camera to bring home to like and he like took it all apart and put it back together and like learned everything about it. And so I don't know if this was like a deliberate it feels like a deliberate reference to that of like how Buster Keaton actually learned how cameras worked. Her name is Sally. okay. So sorry, I derailed the the conversation. Right. So he does, he he runs afoul of the police officer who's trying to get to help him go to the fire. Mm-hmm. Instead, he goes to an empty baseball field and pretends to play baseball for a bit. Yeah, this scene felt very random. It's not great. Like yeah, I I think it's in there cuz Buster Keaton in real loves life baseball. Loved, loves baseball. Loves <laughs> baseball. Just absolutely loved baseball. I this scene doesn't really do anything for me
0: yeah i feel like there's a lot that was working about this movie and like that baseball thing is just like why is this happening right now and it made yeah. me think that this movie was going to be kind of crappier than it is like it's just going to be yeah, a me bunch too. of random I was sort scenes of... right
1: yeah um but so buster keaton doesn't go to the fire he just films a bunch of random stuff he brings it back to mgm they watch it and it's like kino i soviet montage stuff <laughs> exactly which I was like, and they, oh. And they immediately kick him out of the room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're, they're like, what is this What is this uh, artistic crap?
1: Yeah, uh, which is very funny to me. Like, I don't yeah. know how much of that gag is intentional, if it's meant to be, like, nonsense, or if it is Buster Keaton being like, oh no, my character is doing some real experimental stuff. And I think it's, I think it's end, like, I,
0: like it. I think it's that, like, yeah, he is
1: it feels accidentally
0: yeah it, yeah it might be like intentionally done but like i think like the idea is that he has accidentally made an art film instead yes. of uh and and it's certainly not what they want it's i i feel like the kino eye reference has got to be deliberate because it specifically has someone diving and then yeah re- reverse diving mm-hmm. which is yeah. which kino eye like calls attention to like look what Look what film can do. It can make someone dive backwards. Yeah,
1: which is why it feels so deliberate. It feels like Buster Keaton saw Kino Eye and was like, I want to put that in something. I don't know where. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that this movie gets a lot of comedic mileage out of is just tripods, like old tripods that didn't have spreaders. Spreaders being the thing on the bottom of a tripod that keep all the legs in proportion so the legs don't flop all around. Hmm. Old tripods didn't have those. And in this movie, there's a lot of jokes about how The tripod doesn't work or is hard to use or (laughs) too big or whatever. Yeah. It smacks people in the
0: head and breaks glass. And uh, yeah. After he gets kicked out, he kind of gets another chance in a way. And there's a point where he's getting a little more ingrained in the community. And uh, Sally's helping him out a bit more. Yeah. Sally keeps
1: helping him out and like giving him scoops and sort of like telling him kind of what to do to get noticed and, and that sort of thing
0: because she she likes his his moxie yes exactly and eventually he says go on a sunday walk with me so she already has a date set up i believe with the jock cameraman right uh
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) the jock
0: and uh it ends up getting canceled and so she's like hey my date got canceled i can go out with you uh, she says, yeah. what's your phone number uh, and they they exchange phone numbers, which is another piece of kind of like historical technology that sounds kind of interesting to me is that like people were like swapping phone numbers before dates a hundred years ago yeah.
1: Uh, yeah but
0: it was a hundred years ago
1: now we now, now we just swap Instagram follows <laughs>
0: follow for follow um <laughs> I was thinking uh, uh i I wonder how many digits phone numbers were back then it's like give me your phone number it's 307 you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) i do love all of this phone stuff i think is fantastic Hmm. Uh, i mean there's there's the bit where him answering the phone so he lives on like the top floor of the apartment building and the phone is on the bottom floor Mm -hmm. and so when the phone rings he has to run down all the stairs and then he has to, like, run back, all the way back up, and then run all the way back down. It's, there's a lot of running up and down stairs in this section. And it's, like, a full set. It's a huge, like,
0: five-story tall yeah. half apartment building. It's it's insane.
1: It's a very sort of, like, cutaway building, very, like, Wes Anderson-style thing, where the camera is moving between all the different floors. Um, and as you see him running up and down the stairs. Um, it's great. And it's, like, just as cool looking now as it probably was then he, they finally get each other on the phone and he's like come meet me and he immediately just runs to her house that's so it's so good while she's still talking on the phone things she's talking to him yeah the, the second
0: the second that she says come meet me he just dashes over yeah.
1: which is a great joke by itself but then it's we keep putting back to her talking on the phone and then like cut to like an empty phone or cut to him like running through the streets. And the fact that we don't hear what she's saying, I think actually makes that joke funnier. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, what she's saying is literally falling on deaf ears, right? Like, she is just speaking into nothing. Uh Like, even we as the audience aren't hearing it, because we're with Buster, right? He's like the point of view character. Um, I'm probably getting too heady and intellectual about that, but I thought that made the joke It's kind of neat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, It's a silent movie and
0: and her yeah. speech is going nowhere but then yeah he he runs and then arrives right as she's about to hang up basically and and then she just appears behind her yeah
1: and so then they they go on a nice uh date to the to the pool house i guess yeah is what you'd call it pool
0: yeah museum it's a big <laughs> it's a big public pool that's got like a diving board and like 300 people in it and it's indoors and it's got a, a fountain. fountain in the middle yeah. that you can sit on uh and yeah is that I, still
1: open can i go to la and go to that giant pool
0: i want to go to that giant pool although this feels like it's set in new york but i, I don't really know
1: hmm. it probably closed in like 1935
0: <laughs> yeah uh or or maybe closed a year later because ostentatious things couldn't exist during the great depression True.
1: Lot of maybe too many jokes about putting on a bathing suit.
0: Yeah, there's a very extended part where, like, a mobster, I guess, like, gets in the same, uh, in the same changing, changing room as room. him, and,
1: and then they're they both have trying to... to get changed in the same tiny room. But it's like, why would the mobster want to be in the same room? <laughs> it's very contrived, but it's like they get some mileage out of it. At least it goes on a little long.
0: Then they're out in the pool, and uh, he's accidentally put on the loose-fitting uh bathing suit of the mobster uh and the mobsters put on his tiny bathing suit
1: which Uh, is a good joke him walking out in the like giant smock of a bathing suit is (laughs) is very funny
0: but you know i i i was like that could have just as easily been the style at the time you know (laughs) right 1920s bathing suits. suits
1: look ridiculous already like who's to say yeah
0: a bunch of suitors who see this uh uh see sally and are trying to get after her and they keep pushing buster out of the way uh he is trying to kind of do all this stuff to impress her including jumping off of the diving board uh and when he does he uh loses his swimsuit (laughs) and he's and then it and then we get some uh i'm i'm naked and can't let anybody in the pool know that i'm
1: naked which is pretty much always funny i think like i don't know if that Like, that feels like it would be just as at home in, like, a Ben Stiller movie or something. Like, that's just a classic, just like, oh, no, I'm in a a pool with no bathing suit. What do I do? If anything, I think that's just drawing attention to how much, like, contemporary comic actors are still just, like, it's like a Buster Keaton joke, you know? Yeah, yeah. Other than the the changing room stuff, I I like a lot of this pool, pool, all the pool gags. I think there's a lot of fun stuff in here. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we kind of switch gears back to the, like, cameraman stuff, right?
0: Yeah, I guess it stops, stops being so much of a uh, romantic comedy and starts being back back to uh, the, the premise of the film.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Sally gives him, like, a hot tip that she gets that uh, the, like, parade in Chinatown is going to get... uh gonna get used as an ambush for i think the 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 rival tong gangs is that who they were
0: i didn't get to put the name down but it was it was two warring gangs uh who wanted to have a shootout in the middle of a parade with a dragon in it
1: yeah buster shows up he's the only cameraman who shows up to this to cover this parade the gang war breaks out and he's filming all of it he's getting shot at he's getting like like jumping through windows over him and he's through it all he's like his his tripod gets uh the legs shot off there's a great bit where he has to climb up onto like a scaffolding that like falls over as he's riding it down and filming yeah it's it's Um, it's wild this is this is the equivalent part toward the end of the
0: movie where shit just goes bananas
1: (laughs) right yeah this is the most bananas this movie gets um i think it's less sort of like backloaded as it is in uh steamboat bill jr uh-huh there's a bit of decompression after
0: this but this yeah. is like yeah a really wild like all-out battle scene
1: with yeah. jokes put in the middle and uh, he's like fil- he's like holding the camera all weird ways to film different stuff and it's like it in the other the other
0: thing about nightcrawler that this evokes is Uh, there's a part a point where there are two people fighting on the ground and one of them loses their knife and so he puts the knife back in their hands so they can get like a better shot uh because (laughs) this was before journalistic ethics existed i guess (laughs)
1: well also he's, he's new at the job he doesn't know about those things yet
0: i guess so uh but like it's interesting the ways that he is kind of manipulating events to get the best shots right right yeah uh uh one one small other detail is that uh he has a monkey sidekick now. <laughs> so it's him and the monkey in the shootout. Uh and yeah. the monkey's kind of like helping him with his camera quick. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually the whole thing
1: dies down. Uh all the, the other u- camera people show up and they're like, How did you know about this?
0: Yeah, yeah. He's like, pack it in boys, I got this already.
1: But then he goes to like take the film out of the camera and oh no it was just a tiny little you know end of a, of a film role um, It's empty yeah the sky captain moment oh no he, he the camera was empty the whole time <laughs> no
0: and so they're like you pulled all this nonsense you made us all miss this amazing footage and you don't even have anything to show for it because you're incompetent get out of here never come back yeah, it's like the next day and there's like a there's a boat race happening yeah by this point the jock cameraman like like sally got in a lot of trouble for giving him this uh this yeah. tip and the jock cameraman is now uh she had kind of has to stay separate from him and the, the jock is is with her now on the boat
3: yeah
1: so the jock invites her onto his his fancy speedboat for this this boat race <laughs> and buster's there with his camera still, but he's on a rowboat trying to trying to film it. The, the jock cameraman uh, makes a mistake and goes around a corner too fast. And both the jock cameraman and Sally fall out of the boat. And then the boat is still driving. So it's like going in a circle around them so they can't swim to shore. So then Buster leaps into action. Well, he puts the camera down on the beach first. And then... The jock cameraman swims away cowardly while Buster saves Sally. But then Buster runs away to, like, get help. And the jock cameraman, like, revives Sally. And it's like, I saved you. And so then they're like, ugh, this is terrible. But then we reveal that the monkey has filmed the whole thing (laughs) with the camera, which is... The best reveal, maybe, of any movie I've ever seen. It's so good. It's my favorite thing in the world. Um, And then, you know, Buster finds out about this, so then he's like, oh, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to show that I really saved Sally. And then when they show the boat rescue footage, all the Chinatown footage is also in there because the monkey had switched the... That stop the film rolls in the camera, or whatever.
0: The monkey was a very good camera assistant. And, yeah, and swapped the swapped the film reels. Um,
1: yeah, and so then Buster is able to uh, win back Sally from the jock cameraman, who is you know discredited and ashamed, and he got his good footage, and he still has a monkey sidekick, and he has like a good job now. The end. Like it's a, it's a very funny ending, but it's also like very sweet. I thought. There's, like, a couple jokes that don't quite work or going a little too long, but otherwise this is, like, up there with... I think Sherlock Jr. might be slightly better. Mm-hmm. Like, Sherlock Jr. is a little bit more kind of, like... It's more focus. It's a little more... It's it's going a little wilder with its use of, like, film as a, like, joke yeah. uh, medium. um Which this movie doesn't quite go as far with, but... um. I really enjoyed this one a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun.
0: Yes. Yeah, me too. I liked it a lot, too. Uh, This, uh, by the way, the jock was played by Harold Goodwin, who also played the jock villain in college. Great uh,
1: comedy jock actor. Yeah. Speaking of comedies, we should probably move on to the next one that we watched. Yeah. Which is The Circus by Charles Chaplin.
0: Or Charlie. Charlie Chaplin. This isn't note. a
1: Charles Chaplin picture. This isn't a drama.
0: Yeah. And this is his first movie since the Gold Rush. The Chaplin yeah. has been slowing way
1: down to put more yeah. care into what he's doing. He makes like a movie every couple of years. Uh, Which, yeah. else. Yeah, making,
0: like... making a movie every three years doesn't seem that crazy
1: uh, for well, yeah, nowadays. That's, that's how people do it now. Uh. But back then, you made like three a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but i think I think that care comes across in this movie, like this movie feels very carefully made, I guess like it it feels everything about it feels very deliberate, yeah, yeah,
0: I think like this is not the kind of movie where you find messiness, like that baseball scene in it mm, yeah. uh it's it's not like it's like an amazingly super well constructed like puzzle box of a movie, you know, but it's like, it's a very solid comedy movie where like all the beats really work. Uh, the emotion comes through and, uh, and I think also this film is probably like the ultimate maturation of Charlie's uh, of the tramp character. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. The Tramp in his last movie, The Gold Rush, he was like a different person and uh, he still had some kind of like human qualities to him where I think in this movie, the Tramp becomes fully like this kind of filmic
1: imp. (laughs) <laughs> guy you know
0: he's he is he comes
1: from nowhere and goes back
0: to nowhere like, yeah he, yeah. <laughs> yeah and and his and even just like the physical acting in this one it is like fully idiosyncratic there's nothing mm-hmm. like there's nothing like people about it and i think he's lost a bit of the kind of drunkenness affectation of his old yes, kind of performance it, of the character right
1: this is no longer a drunk character which is how it started yeah yeah and now it's more, yeah, this impish. Yeah. He's got a bunch of just ticks, Yeah. <laughs> I think that stands out at this one is like, even amongst the clowns in the circus, none of them act like he does. Like he, the way that he moves and holds himself is like, is completely in its own. Yeah. Like no one else in this movie acts like a silent movie Charlie Chaplin person. It's just, he's right. still doing all of the affectation and all of the body language and and it, it creates a. He does sort of exist almost in this other realm, almost. Or he, he yeah, came yeah. from some weird <laughs> dimension. He came from the yeah. 1910s movie into this movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that, like, a, a lot of people kind of have this idea of silent movie acting as, like, having all of these kind of weird, you know, kind of motions and affectations. Yeah. And really, that's just Charlie. A
1: lot of that's just him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's him. And I, I think in, in The Gold Rush, they even kind of like point out some of the weirdness of the way that he acts by <laughs> drawing comparison between him moving and the way the chicken moves, uh, <laughs> right? But, which he still does that kind of like chicken kicking to bury yeah. somebody in, in uh, dirt in this movie, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, this is a movie about uh, a guy who is so funny that. Even though everyone is annoyed with him, they have to let him be in the circus.
1: Well, it's also it's about a guy that can only be funny unintentionally, seemingly right, but is also kind of just like preternaturally good at it. Mm-hmm. This movie feels very autobiographical to me because mm, it's about a yeah. guy who, sh- who shows up at the circus and everyone's like, "Who's this joker?" And then is like, "Oh, we he's don't actually we
0: don't we don't tolerate jokers at the circus." Yeah.
1: And then is like, "Oh, he's actually." Way better at this than anyone who already works here, which is sort of, at least how Charlie Chaplin saw himself when he first started in the movie biz. He like showed up out of nowhere, and was like, "Hey, this guy's really funny." He's like, "Yeah, I know. I'm better at it than all of you who've been doing it for ten years." <laughs> but that's the thing,
0: right? Is that we no- we noted that when we first saw him yeah. in Kid Races Auto, uh, the Kid Races Auto Venice, whatever his first Kid at uh, auto
1: races, yeah, um,
0: uh, here, his either. first thing. Where we were like, oh, wait, like, he's instantly amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is, like, it's annoying that he's, like, as kind of stuck up about it. (laughs) I mean, talking from, like, behind-the-scenes stuff about how he, like, was getting into fights with Mabel Norman and things and just, like, throwing his weight around. He is very good at it. Like, I think (laughs) one of my notes is, damn it, Charlie is very good at this. (laughs) This movie kind of feels like it's about almost, like the death of vaudeville a little bit, because it's, like, Mm. all these, like, stage clowns who have all these, like, very precise bits that they're doing, and Charlie doesn't understand any of those and, like, ruins all of them. But then he comes up with his own stuff just accidentally that's way funnier. (laughs) But then also at the end, it's, like, everyone kind of moves on without him. Mm -hmm. Like, he shows up, he's better at everyone's job by accident, and then... Everyone's like, alright, we don't need this guy anymore, let's leave. And they leave him in the dust, basically. Which is sort of how I feel like his career has gone up at this point. Which is like, he showed up, he was very good at his job. Uh, he kind of annoyed everyone by how good a, at it he was. Rode high on that hog for a while. And then everyone's like, alright, silent movies are done. We're done with silent movies, we're not making them anymore. We're, they're all finished. And he's like, but... Uh...
0: Well, that hasn't still, quite happened yet. I still want right? to make
1: silent movies. Right. I think I read on Wikipedia or whatever, he shot the final scene of this movie, like, the week before uh, The Jazz Singer came out. Oh, wow. See, so, yeah, I don't know how intentional that, like, reading of it is, but it does kind of, it kind of falls in line with a lot of how his kind of career has gone.
0: Right. Yeah. It's uh, predictive, in a, in a sense.
1: mm yeah.
0: The, the plot of this movie we kind of described in broad strokes, but as is the case with all of this stuff, it's also a, a romance. Uh, mm-hmm. He's trying to get a girl, and he has a rival.
1: and Who uh... is credited in this movie as the girl, even though she's played by Myrna Kennedy. And the characters in the movie call her Myrna, like, in the intertitles, mm-hmm. But her credit is just the girl. Which is always just like she has a name in the movie. You could just call her that. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's like I mean I get it. It's trying to be this, uh, this iconic kind of thing. Yeah, I I went to see the Gold Rush uh a couple weeks ago with a live uh performance. And, oh yeah, that's right.
3: Uh, that was with a
0: live live score. Oh, it was awesome. Um, and uh, I I learned a lot actually about uh the way that silent movie music was kind of improvised like the methods through Mm. which it was improvised back in the day but um in the introduction they were saying that in the gold rush part of the reason why they charlie was uh naming people things like the girl the tramp Mm. you know was as almost like a send-up or reference to what dw griffith was doing with like the brown eyes, the the, mm. the 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 greedy one, like all this kind of thing, uh, which I feel like I feel like it was maybe a trend in a broader way than that in some ways. But also sure. it, it could be it yeah. could be a, a bit of a Griffith touch.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, a lot of a lot of the Buster Keaton movies also have like a girl, a boy, her dad. You know, like, oh, I'm sorry. That was go west that this intro was
0: for. Uh, the ah. buster keaton movie which was doing that
1: yeah okay well it still know. applies though yes i do want to talk about the lion scene because i think it's very it's just impressive that he filmed the scene with a real lion yeah it it's just him in a cage with a lion and, and it it's roars a, at him they they can't fake that there's no this isn't a life of Pi lion you know
0: I, yeah, it feels it feels like stunty in a in a Keatony way almost. Like I'm gonna do something extremely death defying,
1: right. which isn't Chaplin's thing at all. Um, but he makes a good scene out of it. I I really yeah. like that scene where he gets locked into the lion. Well, he gets locked into the cage with the lion. He tries to go out a different door, and there's a tiger in the other through the other door, so he can't go that way. Real tiger also. <laughs> yeah the the tiger
0: reveal is really good though yeah. like that like
1: i gotta get away from the lion oh god it's a tiger <laughs> <laughs> yeah charlie chaplin thinks that uh myrna uh, is into him but she's actually into rex king of the air who's the trapeze artist who she falls in love with in about three seconds yeah so quickly and it's like i want to get married i'm in love with this man he's a trapeze artist
3: <laughs>
1: he's, the, he's the best
0: yeah, there there's also this whole like thing going on with like her dad is the ringleader.
1: She her yeah, her dad is the ringleader who is just super abusive and mean and won't let her eat because like her horse act didn't get enough applause. Yeah. But then he gets he gets beat up later, so it's fine.
0: There's a point where she wants to run away from the circus instead of run away to the circus, right, which is
1: yeah. I mean, can't blame her.
0: Yeah. And, like, there's a point where Rex doesn't show up and and the Tramp has to do his act instead. Right.
1: But he he does it with a wire attached to him that then comes off halfway through, but he doesn't realize it's come off. So he's doing all this crazy stuff because he thinks he's safe. Yeah. Great, it, great joke.
0: But also, like, he's he's trying to do stuff that's, like, really impressive to, like, make mm-hmm. the audience and, and Myrna uh, impressed with him. But also uh he's trying to hide the fact that he's got a wire attached to them mm-hmm. there's this great thing where you know rex climbs up to the trapeze or the the, the tightrope area with his hands like pulling himself up on a rope uh, without having to grasp on with his legs but then <laughs> because he's being pulled by a line like the tramp does it where he's his just body like, is horizontal his like body is fully horizontal yeah. yeah and like it's as if he's like planking in the air uh (laughs) while pulling himself up the rope horizontally and i saw that i saw that and i was just like whoa (laughs) yeah
1: it's so funny yeah (laughs) it's it's really really good but yeah at the end uh uh myrna and and rex get together and they they all the circus kind of leaves him behind and he's kind of left in this empty circus field
0: yeah, he ends up basically giving them his blessing, realizing that they're more fit for each other. Right. Which is sweet, I suppose. And it,
1: it ends on the sort of, like, the most quintessential Chaplin ending, which I think is in a lot of the shorts, but this might be the only feature that does it, where it's mm. just him alone walking into the background, and we, you know, iris in on him, doing his silly little walk with his cane. Yeah. And it feels very, it feels very, like, a classical Chaplin ending yeah yeah uh yeah that's the circus. another movie about uh circus performers mm-hmm. is the Man who laughs, directed by Paul Lenny hmm not a comedy. Who,
0: we have not covered any Paul Lenny yet, but he no. was a pretty major figure in German expressionism, yeah, uh, it's just he directed some of the deeper
1: cuts <laughs> right um, like most things on the show, like we we have only covered the surface level of like anything we talk about, but yeah this this is based on a Victor Hugo novel, Victor Hugo of uh, Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Dom fame, both of which have been made into movies starring Lon Chaney. This was supposed to be the next in the sort of like Universal Studios Lon Chaney plays a spooky Victor Hugo character. I mean, this movie.
0: feels like it was meant for Lon Chaney. So that makes sense. Because it feels it like was. a Lon Chaney movie. I
1: think it was supposed to be made second after Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and for various reasons, it kept falling apart. They like they couldn't get the rights. So then like Lon Chaney wanted to make Phantom of the Opera instead. They did that. Imagine not being able to get
0: the rights to a Victor Hugo novel because it was recent back then. <laughs>
1: So Universal still wanted to make this movie. The head of Universal, Carl Lemley went after some fellow German expats uh, who had made a movie called Waxworks, which we didn't cover, but is another like famous gen- German expressionist movie. It's sort of an uh, anthology movie um, that was directed by uh, Paul Lenny and co starred Adrian Veidt, who we've talked about uh, a few times before.
0: Conrad Veidt?
1: Uh, yeah, not Adrian. Adrian Veidt is the villain from Watchmen.
0: Um, Conrad Veidt, <laughs> excuse me.
1: Yeah, Conrad Con- Veidt from uh, uh, Hands of Orlock and...
0: Uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah.
1: So this, this is a Universal Monster movie. This is part of the original Dark Universe.
0: <laughs> so so it is. And, and yeah, this movie is... It is dark. It's I very guess dark.
1: Fact- it's not really a horror movie, though. It's kind of a romantic adventure film.
0: In a way, but also like every moment that he's on screen is so like, terrifying. Yeah, unsettling.
1: Right, because <laughs> um, right, the the thing that this movie is the most famous for is uh, the Joker is based on this movie.
0: Send in the clown. The the Batman villain. I think we've villains. used that. Uh, we've used that audio already before in our intro for our intro song. So we I thought we that used again. a
1: different Batman villain song for that one. I don't remember, but <laughs> this is like explicitly has been stated by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson, who were the guys who collectively created the Joker in Batman comics. They were like, yeah, no, this movie. They didn't actually watch the movie. They just saw a publicity still from it, which that publicity still is way scarier than the character ever looks in the movie itself.
0: <laughs> it's kind of um, like how, uh, the, there's an, an Osamu Tezuka version of Metropolis, that he came up it's based with the, on the entire poster right yeah it's based on yeah. the poster of the of the fritz Lang metropolis wild
1: yeah this the, the character in this movie is not a villain he just looks scary because he is smiling all the time and looks like the joker
0: yeah and part of the part of the idea of this movie is him learn. like he, he was disfigured by a bunch of like rogue surgeons uh when he was a kid yeah this like uh, weird made-up
1: group like society of people who like perform surgery on children uh,
0: the movie is basically a journey of him you know being rejected by society and eventually and like making attempts to be accepted and then kind of in the end realizing that he doesn't need them to accept him. Mm -hmm. He's just going to have a messed up face and, uh, and be loved by someone who is blind. So it doesn't matter.
1: It is very sweet in this movie. I found the romance of this movie worked pretty well. And I didn't expect it to when it started out.
0: I think, yeah, I think at the beginning, like this whole, like, you know, guy with a jacked up face and (laughs) girl who can't see. Yeah. Like, it's like, Oh, she like his worry is that the only reason she loves him is because she can't tell how jacked up his face is, yeah. right? Yeah. But like, there's a line that she says toward the end of the movie, which is that she's the because she's blind, she's the only one who can see the real him.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: which is which is very nice.
1: Yes, um, it is uh, a good line, and uh, made me uh, my my heart swell. You
0: should get that checked out.
1: God closed my eyes so I could see, so only I could see the real. Gwynplaine. Gwynplaine being the main character's name, which is a jack up name, name, also. Yeah. Hi, my <laughs> name's Gwynplaine. I was thinking through that whole thing. I was like, ah, oh, man,
0: like, there needs to be babies now named
1: Gwynplaine. Named Gwynplaine? Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring in the name Gwynplaine back. So, yeah, even though this is, like, a pretty. The, like, plot of it, other than the fact he has a jacked up face, is a sort of, like, almost like a swashbuckling, like, romantic adventure with, like, dungeons and fights and escapes and things um but because paul lenny is a german expressionist director he it it's very spooky like it there's a real sort of like Murnau or lang-esque like spookiness that hangs over the whole thing a lot of smoke oh, yeah. and shadows and alleyways and such
0: yeah and they're like he keeps kind of covering up his face uh so that the other like other people aren't kind of staring at him yeah. Uh, but then every time he uncovers his face, it just makes the whole scene yeah, it's just like, so, oh. like, unsettling. It's like, wow, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, yeah, the face that he does is very good. It's very yeah. creepy and unsettling. He's got, he's got unsettling. like, big,
1: big fake teeth, um, perpetually, like, forced, like, giant grin. But, like, yeah. he's, like, he's grinning, but, like, his eyes are sad, so it's this just, like, upsetting expression. Yeah,
0: which Conrad Veidt kills it in this movie. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, he's fantastic.
1: Re- this might be the best thing I've seen him do. And this is kind of, other than Caligari, this is like, because Caligari is famous for a bunch of other reasons. This movie is basically famous for him. Yeah. Um, and he's yeah. not even he's, top built. I know, crazy. Uh, the makeup for Gwynplaine was done by uh, Jack Pierce, who will go on to do the Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Mummy universal movies so he's like the universal monster guy uh so yeah like Lon Chaney did all his own makeup but now we're moving on to the the Jack Pierce era of universal jacked up faces um (laughs) hey I just jacked up your
0: face (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: there's a lot of cool like dungeon prison castle stuff in this movie yeah
0: i mean a lot of this movie is is like speaking of castles this is like a very kind of like re like royal intrigue movie yeah which yeah like the original reason why Gwynplaine was disfigured was he was the son of a lord who was kind of a rogue lord and king henry the second i believe was not a fan of him and so he's like i hired some weirdos to mess up your kid's face how do you like that
1: also now i'm gonna Uh, put you in an iron maiden Yes. So that Lord Gwynplaine's dad, the lord, uh is also played by uh Conrad Veidt, which is kind of cool.
0: Oh, I didn't notice that.
1: Yeah. I didn't notice it at all watching the movie, but I, afterwards I was like, "Oh, cool. That is the same guy." The kid is cast out into the cold.
0: He finds like a random girl that a, baby. Uh, a, a random baby He's like ten years old. He finds a random baby who is in the arms of his, her frozen mother. Yeah. Uh just recently deceased, I suppose. From, from Faust. Uh yeah. And so he's he kinda takes the baby, uh, and then runs into this uh roving philosopher.
1: Uh I mean uh, roving philosophers name? Ursus. Ursus. Philosopher slash, like, theater guy. Yeah. Uh, Who has a dog named Homo. Right. Which is, don't laugh, (laughs) is a reference to the Latin phrase, what is it? Homo canis? I mean, it's like a Homo sapien. It's like, yeah. No, but it's specifically in reference to a Latin phrase, Homo homini lupus, which translates roughly to a man is a wolf to another man. Okay, but man like, is homo. True, yes. Um, and there are many intertitles in this movie where they are talking to the dog and it's very silly because it's they like... say things like Be quiet homo. Yes. <laughs> um and I'm like Which... this isn't this isn't supposed to be funny, but it's it's very funny.
0: <laughs> I um... feel like if uh if we were a bit edgier, a be quiet <laughs> homo would be the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i don't know if it should be but that probably be not a th- no yeah. no
0: um that's that's a joke for within the episode when you can read our tone yeah, and we and yeah, and yeah. know that uh we're not evil saying it ironically <laughs> yeah
1: and so then it says that Gwynplaine became a strolling player which is also something that made me laugh unintentionally he <laughs> means a wandering actor but a strolling player just makes me laugh
0: it's a yeah that's what you do in a walking simulator <laughs> yeah. you're a strolling player <laughs> so he grows up and yeah. uh and becomes a clown because what else can you do when you have a smile permanently carved yeah. into your face
1: yeah they're sort of touring and going to different ren fairs back when ren ren fairs were just just the fairs just fairs yeah and then there's like the old the jester from the old the opening scene the kind of flashback opening has now become the like creepy vizier to the king mhm and uh there's a a duchess who's kind of trying to has been given Winplane's family's old manor house but it's like trying to make a play for she's like trying to m- get married to this doofy lord that no one likes
0: yeah. prince valium
1: yeah uh who the reveal of him is so funny just hit the expression on <laughs> his face it's like look at this dipshit <laughs> yeah, um, at first
0: you see a drawing of him, and you like that looks like a silly guy, and then you yeah, see him and then in person. It cuts to him, and he's the
1: exact same face. It's so good. <laughs> but so, like, the Duchess sees Gwyn Gwynplaine's act, and is like, "This guy's crazy. I think I want a piece of that." <laughs> the Duchess is like trying to seduce Gwynplaine. I forget exactly why. her
0: motivations seem a little unclear like i think her whole deal is she doesn't she's not too excited about uh getting married to this doofy guy so she's just going out and kind of doing stuff uh as uh and trying to be be free of of his clutches or or not clutches but just like of her responsibilities. And so she's hanging out with other guys and she sees Seducing this kind of clowns. She, she sees this clown. She sends, she sends Gwynplaine a me, uh, a message that says like, uh, I'm the one that didn't laugh at your act. Uh, is it because I love and respect you or because you're not funny? Uh, <laughs> come and meet me to find out. Yeah. Uh, and, and negging so this,
1: Gwynplaine works.
0: Yeah. Uh, he, he, I mean, it's interesting because it's like it presents him an opportunity to like he he's basically like maybe I'm not so horrifying that mm. if like somebody yeah. does love me despite what I look like because uh uh what's her name uh d d uh the the blind girl doesn't count because you can't see him, so he yeah. says like maybe I can be like real serious actual person if someone yeah. loves me even if I, I look disfigured.
1: Yeah. Him and D who is the baby from the beginning. I don't know if we mentioned that. Um, are like clearly already in love, but he's just super insecure about it because he's got a jacked up face. So yeah, yeah this is sort of like, an op- this is like a, a sort of moment of doubt for him where he's like, Oh shit. He he's never been able to fully accept like his own face. And so the fact that this, this rich lady is like, Hey, I think your face is kind of cool. He's like, what? Me? And so even though he's, like, kind of reluctant about it, he does go and meet her. But he's, like, so put off by it. Like, she ends up laughing at him, not because of his face, but he thinks that she's laughing at his face. And so he runs away. And that pisses her off. And then some sword fights happen. Uh, They think when Plain dies because he goes to the dungeon and they see, like, a body getting carried out. But yeah, and, it, it kind of gets uh, revealed
0: amongst the royalty that he is actually the the right. son of the yeah. Lord, which He's he doesn't the heir know to this. this. Massive fortune, yeah. And, and then like
1: they try to make him into like a lord. They like put a big wig on him and bring. Yeah, they him in.
0: simultaneously like, try and like like bring him into the fold, and also like other people are trying to get rid of him so that they can yeah. keep their position.
1: Uh, a lot of a lot of intrigue going on. Yeah, um, I did really like the scene where he, he is like presented to the like all the lords in his like wig and he just uh tears them all down kind of. Yeah, there's a great um like cool like yeah, sword fight at the end, big escape. Yeah, there's a big um, kind of like
0: Frankenstein
1: y kind of mob that chases yeah. him. Cloud torches, pitchforks, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And then uh He's, like, running after Ursus and D are leaving on a ship. Just, like, at the beginning of the movie, there's, like, a ship leaving. But he gets to the ship in time. And then he ends up with D and everything everything's good and happy. And it's a happy. good ending. It's sweet. Yes. They, so, at the end of the movie, they repeat all the cast credits. And there's a, uh, a thing at the top that says, This is repeated at the request of picture patrons who desire to check the names of performers who work has pleased them.
3: Which is, I want that
1: to be at the end of every movie. It's like, I guess, yeah, that is what credits are for. <laughs> I just, I love the explanation of what credits are for. Yeah. it's And just the, the vocabulary of it is wonderful. So let's talk about our penultimate movie of the episode, Spies, directed by Fritz Long. Um, yeah. Again, co-written or written by uh, Thea Von Harbu, but they kind of co yeah. it together
0: and then she she turned it into a novel a year later. Yeah.
1: This is a James Bond movie. I'll say that. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is there's a sexy Russian spy who seduces the main
1: character.
0: Uh there's costumes which I feel like is not like quite a James Bond sort of thing like the main, the the main character agent uh 3 something.
1: Right. The the main uh, character whose only real name is a three digit number. Yeah, but yeah, there's there's so much in this movie that feels like it is the like core. Three two six. His name is three two six. Um, it's a little less elegant maybe than Double Oh Seven, but you know, yeah, whatever.
0: yeah, but his his name is a number.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, he yeah he does not have a a sort of there has various code names he goes by, but the character name is just three two six, and yeah, he's like a suave, cool guy secret agent who's like, you know, going out and on, on the town with different ladies. Although I like how he's introduced in this movie. It's very cool. This movie opens with like this cool montage of like spies are stealing stuff and murdering people across the country. Who's doing it? No one knows. But we as the audience see it's the mastermind.
0: Yeah, there's like a there's like a reveal. It's like who did this? And then yeah. the, the the guy says, I did yes. to himself. Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, the villain, the guy played by... Uh, it's Rudolf klein Yeah, Rudolf Klein-Roga, who I don't know if we mentioned in the Metropolis episode, was originally married to Thea von Harbu before Thea von Harbu left him for Fritz Lang, which is exactly the dynamic in Metropolis with his character. Wild. Anyway, <laughs> he's the villain in this movie. They made a bunch of movies together, so clearly there were not that many hard feelings. But the first time we meet three, two six in this movie, he is seemingly a sort of like like a hobo. destitute like yeah a a tramp, one might even say, yeah, um, and then we kind of reveal that oh, he's actually a secret agent, and then later on it's like oh, he cleans up nice, and he's actually very glamorous looking <laughs> um which is cool i just i I would love also for like a James Bond movie to introduce their main spy as like ragged and like unshaven and in like bad clothes i guess casino royale kind of does that yeah i guess but not not to quite the dramatic no point that this movie does um
0: this feels more yeah it feels uh maybe a little more mission impossible uh,
1: yeah this movie feels like it owes a lot to louis fiat's movies like the vampires or uh, oh yeah oh yeah uh, what's his name uh Phantomas,
0: Phantomas or like uh the the one that you liked the trust the trust or battles yeah. for money like it's
1: got a lot of like disappearing ink and like plots and people you know jumping out of windows and on yeah. cars and things
0: it's an extremely plotty movie and when i watch spy movies i usually cannot follow what's happening
1: i use there's the fr- the so much time stuff. i usually ignore following the plot because <laughs> it's usually really complicated yeah, and that is, that is the case with this one. It's, it's,
0: it's the mold that spy movies were made There's in. There's so
1: much maneuvering and spy stuff going on. We're not going to go into any of it because it's too much. <laughs> but there is... Sonia is a Russian spy who is sort of caught between 326 and the Rudolf Klein rogue villain, Hagi, who is the head of the bank in addition to being this, like, Blofeld-esque supervillain. And he also moonlights as a clown. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Forgot about that part. Somehow. Yeah, this movie, I feel like, it feels like it owes so much to, like, the earlier Louis Fiazza, but I also feel like modern spy movies feel like they owe so much to this. Yeah. Like, it's in this kind of perfect in-between spot of, like, I was reminded so much of James Bond and Mission Impossible, but also of a lot of earlier stuff. And it's cool Mm -hmm. just to kind of see the progression of that how it's like True. spy spy films have kind of always had this like fun element of like ooh secret you know secret messages and like double crosses <laughs> and and disguises and things yeah uh the the villain at one point says i am richer than ford and i pasted everything less texas <laughs> that's a that
0: was a great line yeah, a, <laughs> a lot of good lines in this yeah this this movie also starts out with a bang no pun intended like yeah i i started watching this movie kind of late at night and standing kind of close to the screen and after five minutes i was like there's too much happening like i gotta watch yeah. this later <laughs> the
1: the opening of this movie is a great opening like one of the great movie openings i feel like we've watched for the show possibly yeah um yeah, it's, it's just, like,
0: within five minutes, there are, like, two assassinations, and, like, a bunch of people scrambling from place to place, yeah. and, like, a fight's breaking out, and, yeah. a,
1: like, a, Documents uh... Documents are being stolen. Yeah, and, like... And like exchanged like hands to different people, and... Secret,
0: yeah. secret cameras are discovered on people's person.
1: Oh, the secret camera, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't even know if cameras like that existed when they were so made. They do now, obviously, this... but,
0: like... The other, the, yeah, the other way this feels like a Bond movie is it's like it's like near future technology, circa the time that yeah. uh, that it's that it's in, which is uh, cool. They, yeah.
1: it's, it has it it takes on this almost kind of retrofuturistic quality to it. Yeah. not unlike Metropolis. Yeah, um, uh, there's a shot in this sort of opening sequence of a guy in a motor- a motorcycle, like a motorcycle messenger yeah great shot it's like shot almost like through the wheel of the motorcycle like super low like looking up at the guy riding it um and i've seen this shot in modern movies several times because i saw this i'm like i've seen this before and it's in (laughs) escape from la and the french dispatch i don't know how intentional it is in those movies but it's like the camera is almost exactly the same. it's a
0: really cool shot
1: it's an amazing i'm definitely gonna steal it at some point it's great
0: they, um, um, I mean, also in that opening sequence, like, you know, there, there's a bunch of news going around about the assassination and certain, I don't know, the uh, treaty things that were stolen. Uh, yeah. And it has uh, an animation of, uh, of like radio signals leaving a tower. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: I also thought of that, I'm like, just like our show. <laughs> but it's also
0: just like classic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Should have been accompanied by a boo doop boop
3: boop
1: Yeah. The news soundtrack... of now. <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack that I watched this with did not have that, unfortunately, but it it should have, maybe. Yeah, going back to the the Metropolis, the kind of futurism of Metropolis, this movie doesn't have nearly as much of that kind of like this movie isn't nearly as futuristic as that, obviously. No. But I do think it, it I can see a lot of the same kind of ways in which Fritz Long loves like design and composition. Mm -hmm.
0: yeah it's it's all this uh i mean metropolis is an art deco version like vision of the distant future where this is like an art deco vision of like the cool the the cool toys that spies might have yeah
1: yeah also another metropolis connection there is a poster of metropolis on (laughs) the wall in one scene like a bunch of posters
0: yeah like wheat pasted posters all on on a wall uh that's it was so weird it's like looking at uh, the like tokyo godfathers or something like that um or no paprika I, uh, does man, paprika this have like this posters this...
1: from millennium actress in it
0: yes it has okay. it has posters it has a scene toward the end of it where uh they're walking through a street and there's a movie theater playing millennium actress tokyo godfathers and oh, okay. perfect blue yeah uh, this is the second time in two episodes that I have name dropped a Satoshi Kon movie and then mistakenly said the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> a
1: different Satoshi Kon movie. Yeah, <laughs> there's only four of them. Another sort of Metropolis ish connection is so Metropolis often cited as like a big inspiration for Blade Runner. This movie has a scene that is like directly, I I think maybe directly lifted into Blade Runner. There's a scene with the 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 um. The Japanese consulate, the Japanese ambassador, who's Mm -hmm. played by a German actor in this, but whatever. It's the 20s. They didn't understand how to not (laughs) do that yet.
0: There are Asian actors in other parts of the movie. Yes,
1: just not this character. There's a scene where he meets uh, a girl on the street who's like terrified and in squalor and is like begging for help, which is a a scene in Blade Runner. Like the scene where. the first scene with Daryl Hannah in Blade Runner is like mm. almost like beat for beat this same scene in this movie, which makes me wonder if just like is that whole movie just lifted from Fritz Lang stuff? <laughs> um, kind of.
0: I mean, also like the facility that uh, that Harbo, uh, whatever his name is, the bad guy, uh, yeah. the Hagi. the whole like yeah, Hagi, uh, the whole the whole facility that of evil people that Hagi uh yeah. is in it reminded me of that building that is in a bunch of different um hollywood the, things the,
1: the bradbury building the bradbury yeah. building which, which is in blade runner where that scene takes place yeah yeah right yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it reminded me of that building from 500 days of summer and and blade runner <laughs> yeah
1: um also in the artist and there's a couple other places in this movie where i was like oh this shot Really looks, reminds me of something from like a newer thing. And it, I always wonder in that instance, like, is that a, was that like the Coen brothers or somebody being like, spies, cool movie, let's steal that shot. Or is it just like, sometimes you frame people walking upstairs and it's going to look the same, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so there's all this spy intrigue going on. We can't get into all of it. There's the, the, the the Japanese ambassador has this whole plan that he's going to do where he's going to, try to sneak this uh treaty that's been signed back to japan through all these secret means but he gets betrayed by this woman that he helped off the street Mm -hmm. who's actually working for hagi um and i think i don't i forgot the actor's name who plays her she's very good because she she plays like this sort of like wounded bird character but then is Mm -hmm. also a like like crazy like henchwoman character when she's not yeah you know in character with the ambassador um which i like i thought she played that kind of double role really well yeah yeah but so then he he's betrayed uh and uh commits seppuku because you gotta (laughs) have seppuku in this movie um and it's like pretty they don't show like the blade going in but they get pretty close like it's a it's a pretty intense scene, I thought.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There,
0: there is some like stark violence in this movie.
1: Yeah, a um, lot of people get shot in this movie.
0: Yeah, um, in particular and, that like and as like stabbed
1: and strangled. Now that I think about it,
0: as Hagi is caught, the way the movie ends, H- Hagi oh, is what a um... great
1: ending this movie has.
0: <laughs> uh so they, they find out that, like, the reason why their plans have been being foiled is that Hagi is one of the agents uh, who is currently on, a, like, Deep Undercover as a clown. Mm-hmm. So Hagi, the guy that runs a bank, is pretending to be a Secret Service agent who is pretending to be a clown. So mm-hmm. he spends every night being a clown. They find this out because he kind of left a trail of evidence.
1: He might just the, do the clowning the clown on weekends.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> he has a bank and an evil organization to run.
0: Sometimes I wonder how characters in movies have the time to get all their stuff done. They, they ambush him They on while he's on stage. Uh, Every wing of the of the stage is is uh, has agents swarming pointing guns at him like there are people in the audience pointing guns at him. So he he just finishes his act uh, and tries to find a way to get out. Uh, But like. He pulls a gun, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really help him any. He realizes he's cornered and the movie ends with a clown on stage, just shooting himself in the temple.
1: <laughs> yeah. Crazy. And, and it's the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, before that, there is a cool sort of like raid on the secret hideout. Um, yeah. Where they're like breaking into the bank and they're like breaking into the secret rooms. And there's like a filling, filling the place up with gas and like,
0: yeah very very spy movie of like you've got 15 there's... minutes to find the hostages yeah. uh and then like got it you gotta do it now the ticking time yeah. bomb
1: there's a whole train crash sequence that we didn't talk about at all there's a lot of like cool action set pieces in this also yeah
0: there's there's a uh, when the sonya the russian spy and the agent the main agent uh Pre-2-6. go on a date three two six when they go on a date once they go to a very strange place which is (laughs) a dinner theater boxing match where as soon as the match ends there are some violins ready to play music so that people can (laughs) they they clear out the the boxing ring and then everybody starts dancing to the violins
1: which makes me wonder is that a weird fritz long thing or is that just a thing that happened in weimar germany i don't know right yeah um I thing about this, another part of the kind of retro futuristic thing that I liked about this movie is all the villains' henchmen wear like, like aviator hats and goggles, yeah, um, and have like grenade belts and stuff. There's um, <laughs> just a lot of kind of, yeah, fun 1920s sci-fi stuff. And yeah, cool movie. I liked it. I didn't like it as much as I thought I might. Like, mm-hmm. I've been looking forward to this spy specifically for a couple for like a while.
0: It seems like a Glenn movie.
1: It does, and I didn't like it quite as much as I kind of expected to, but it was still a lot of fun. Now let's move on to our final film of the episode.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to change my mind actually. A bit that uh, that I think I think the death of a life and death of a Hollywood extra is my favorite. I know that uh, oh. we rec- we recorded earlier and we said that I said the spies was my favorite, but I I think I like the other one. I think it, I like its chutzpah. But uh, when I say that I like spies in a minute, in in an hour, then uh, ignore that. <laughs> so, uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc. We, oui. what y'all, what y'all think?
1: I liked it. It was a cool movie. That's it. That's all I have to say. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, Cody, you're the reason you're here is to talk about this movie. Um, and so I'm curious. Like, when did you first see this movie? Like, under what circumstances, and like, what was your initial reaction to it?
2: All right. Well, first and foremost, I want to shout out my friend, uh, Sean Boyle, who presented. He wanted me to watch this movie quite badly for some time. And I think the trade off was I would watch this if he watched Han Popo, a great movie, uh, which I believe he has still not watched, but neither here oh, nor there. Brutal. Thank God he turned me on to this, though, because it is one of the most beautiful films I've ever, ever seen from both a cinematography standpoint. And the performance of the lead, uh, Renee Jean Falconetti, which I believe this is her, what, second and last film, is it not?
3: hmm yeah.
2: This would, uh, I don't have words for it, and it's kind of a hot take calling it one of the greatest performances in cinema history, but it really is. The amount she's able to do without much more than a close-up, I could go on. But yeah, the first time I heard of it, that would have been about a year ago, and I saw it twice in one sitting believe both times with uh voices of light accompaniment uh if you guys are familiar well let me first ask have you which which version did you guys see which uh score was it accompanied by
0: i believe i watched the voices of light one i think that's the one that's the default on the criterion channel
2: same typically Yeah. yeah yeah well there's also there were three very common ones floating around right now in addition to richard einhorn's uh voices of light you have one that has Will Gregory of Goldfrap and uh, Adrian Utley of Portishead did a pretty uh, popular score for it, and there's also one by composer and pianist uh, Mia Yana Sita, I believe is how you pronounce her name, Um, neither of which I've seen, uh, but the interesting takeaway from this is that none of these are actually a score for the movie, but rather music inspired by the film. I imagine whatever the original intended score was is long lost. Uh, I understand this was more often than not it would be played in a theater with a live orchestra. Um and with this movie having gone missing for as long as it did, I think they were kinda of left to their devices to figure something figure something else out. And that's a whole different fascinating story, just how Richard Einhorn uh um put this together.
1: I think that's something we've definitely run into a bunch is silent movies that had some score originally that has been lost or is like has been replaced by other people's writing new ones. It's like, there's a lot of movies that don't really... There are some that have a sort of, like, deliberate, intentional score. And then there's so many that are just either... Whatever the musicians decided to play that day, or sort of have so many different scores that have been associated with it that there isn't really one definitive one.
0: Yeah, a lot were sent out with sheet music, but that, like, only kind of became common, I'd say, in the late 1910s, something like that. Yeah.
1: I think even this movie, like the the French premiere had one score, but like the Danish premiere had a different score mm-hmm.
2: and then if they were being done with the live orchestra and they were those releases were several months apart. I believe it was released in denmark twenty first of april nineteen twenty eight and not in France until october so there was a big there was a big old gap. I believe they had completed filming as early as nineteen twenty seven but they faced a lot of censorship challenges they had to kind of yeah. push through to get it seen in the first place um they were very afraid of offending the Catholic Church when they were putting this thing out.
1: Yeah, I read that there was like a uh, kind of a movement in France against the movie, like before it was even made, against mm-hmm. the director uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer, because he was not French and not Catholic, and they were like, "How can how can you make a film about Joan of Arc, our patron saint?"
2: From what I've heard about the man, perhaps he was not necessarily uh, very good at endearing them to his. <laughs> his project is a nice way to put it sounds like kind of a prick uh a very talented prick mind you but some of the quotes about how he would with red in his face passionately direct uh Mm -hmm. renee falconetti sounds like oh i see you screamed at her and made her cry and that's why she stopped doing movies um there seems to be a lot of stories of that vein and i can't imagine a man like you know you know, Joss Whedon a hundred years ago still makes studios mad. It's just, it's just a fact. I do find it, uh, well, like may, may I share an anecdote? I feel like I'm all over the place with this, but uh, go ahead. the yeah, go. set. Yeah. He was very adamant that the set look and feel like the court and castle wherein these trials happened. So they built a full-scale model, most of which, most of that set, despite having four walls and everything can't be seen on camera because so much of it is composed in close-up, but he felt it needed to be of such high detail simply for the actors to have something to feel like they were actually there. Um, The ground of the set, much of it was stone. He'd have uh, Falconetti kneeling on the stone and have her do tens of takes more than necessary to capture the scene, but have her, his direction was, you cannot let the audience know that your knees are in so much pain from being on this stone all day, so he wanted to show he wanted her to show a suppressed pain through her eyes to the audience, and he wanted to make sure that he'd find moments of her slipping as an actor, wherein her pain shows in her face to kind of capture a moment. That's nuts.
0: Wow, yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the way that Sp- uh, Spielberg, um,
1: shots fired,
0: <laughs> the way that Kubrick treated uh, Shelley Duvall on The Shining.
1: Although I've heard that Shelley Duvall was sort of more, less put upon than the sort of initial, like, assumption was. Like, Shelley Duvall showed up to that movie ready to, like, get fucked up Used. a bit.
2: I mean, you can you can call it what it is. It's abuse, but at a certain point, like, there, there might be an agreed-upon relationship between an actor and director wherein, yeah, give me the abuse so I can get where I need to be emotionally. That doesn't mean that I don't think that Filmmaker won't sometimes cross a line when given that kind of uh, room to play, so to oh, speak.
0: Yeah. Right. It's not. It's not something that. I mean, you know, as we maybe see in The Shining, and we see here, there, there is some truth in some cases toward giving yourself this uh, immersive experience of pain and horror to to <laughs> get it to actually show up on screen. Method uh, man.
1: Yeah. I mean as or... as long as an actor is opting into that, I don't like stories mm-hmm. when it's like oh no, they didn't want that to happen. Yeah. Like yeah. if actors are like, No, that's how I wanna do this, then yeah, like go for it. But um so yeah, I don't I don't know how on board Falconetti was with all of the kneeling on stone floors and no. crying all day.
2: I do imagine her never doing a movie again is not uh ammo for uh doesn't feel like ammo that she <laughs> yeah. was on board.
1: Yeah, it doesn't support that thesis much. No, that's what I'm trying to say. Chris, what did you what did you think of this movie?
0: I was I liked it a good deal. Um I thought the I thought it's an amazing showcase for the acting. Mm-hmm. I feel like it could have been a lot shorter.
2: <laughs> okay, well that was one of my questions, is how many frames did you watch it? that was it 20 or 24
0: i watched the 24 frames and i still thought it was so that is the shorter one (laughs)
3: yeah
2: i i i was left almost wanting more or maybe that is sufficiently filled watching this movie i guess and i was more worried about that because i'm not as obviously not as practiced in the in uh film from the media uh era as you guys are
0: this is atypical for that time oh
2: yeah yeah no no no, i got that sense for sure which
0: so this movie you know, part of what characterizes it. Uh and I guess <laughs> I guess at some point very soon we probably should back up and just give a general idea of what happens in the movie. But uh this movie is composed out of a lot of really tight close-ups and mm-hmm. just like showing somebody's face in really close on her face for 70% of the entire <laughs> movie, basically so structurally with all of these close-ups formally it is atypical but then also i think a lot of movies at this time they didn't linger on things as much as this one does which is which Mm. is in in many ways to its strength because it's showing the depth of the acting uh personally though i kind of felt like it was hitting a lot of the same beats over and over again and so i was like i i would have like to see kind of more of the story uh, hmm. rather than like focused in on this one thing for so long. And if it was going to focus in, it could have lost like 30 minutes maybe, but, uh, but that's, it seems very petty.
2: <laughs> I see the point of view. I just couldn't disagree more. Um, one of the things I love about it is that it, it felt compelled, he felt compelled, tell the story strictly set within the parameters of the trial Mm -hmm. at this point particularly i feel like maybe i'm wrong perhaps she's still quite legendary but at the time like the story of joan of arc was pretty well known and he was always depicted as a warrior and they they like to highlight the themes that made her atypical as a woman her age her power the fact that she saw herself as a conduit to god but the movie wanted to show her in her it's kind of like reminds me a lot of the last temptation of christ wherein it wanted to show her moments of pain and fear that she had to overcome in order to show the courage that she had, it made her much more human. The human side of things, you know? Because mm-hmm. she's always so much just this, this almost this mythical figure, and she wasn't. She was a teenage girl who was by all probability a schizophrenic and uh, possibly trans and left in a position where she was asked to give up everything she believed in just to be left alive. And she had to overcome all of that just to, to to stick to her guns like so much of this could have been prevented just by changing into a dress and she opted not to do that and there's no way that her survival instincts weren't gnawing at her the whole time there's no way she wasn't feeling that immense pain and one of the reasons i love that it as you said atypically decided to radically um, emphasize uh the faces of his actors. Um, he saw her in theater, and if you think about it, the nuances of expression that cinema allows allows for you to tell a story in a much different kind of way, and I think a lot of people were still, seemingly, setting movies up like like you'd see a stage play, and this was just, look at the actors, and let's see what they can convey. Um, none of the actors in this movie wore makeup, for example. He wouldn't allow them. He wanted uh, any little bit of like like facial expression to come through on the camera for them. Um... And and that's I don't know that stuck out to me as a as more evidence that he wasn't interested in doing much more than close-ups of actors. This seemed more like a project of how can we as a cameraman help an actor tell a story using just their face. There were very few dialogue cards. Um, it felt very purposeful, is all I'm saying. I guess mm-hmm. the choice to do it the way they did it.
0: Yeah. Definitely, definitely on purpose. Definitely a considered choice, and I think that there, yeah, there are many ways that I think it works very, very well. Uh, I think you bring up there's a moment in the movie where they tell her you can just put put all this behind you and you can just walk away if you just put on a dress, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she, uh, she like contemplates it for a second because she's mm-hmm. like ha- she has this moment of weakness of her convictions and i think those are those are the moments where like the subtlety and the facial expressions really shine i think because Hmm. it like that very human conflict that you're seeing on her face uh and then and then her resolving herself to stick to her principles i think i think all that works quite well there
1: that stuff of like humanizing this historical figure was kind of my favorite aspect of the movie because mm-hmm. i during it i definitely thought about the last Joan of arc movie we watched before this show which was the george Meliers one from like 1905 or something i believe so yeah um and that is like this like sprawling historical epic with battle scenes and like divine visions of like angels and shit
0: oh it's also like five minutes long
1: <laughs> that too But, and this is, like, the furthest thing from that, where it's, like, trying to strip away all of the sort of, like, pomp and circumstance around this person and kind of focus on a single day. I mean, the movie took, like, about a month of time and compressed it down to a single day, but it's, like, this, like, very, very focused thing.
2: It wasn't concerned with a war epic. This was a trial picture, and I was looking into it. It's One of the first, if not the first, real, like, trial movie. Like, that's what this is about. Yeah, it
1: might be. I mean... I feel like it's always dangerous to say it's the first, of anything. No, honestly, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um...
0: Going back to Melies, there's uh, the uh, Dreyfus Affair, which has uh, one of the multi-part film. Uh, it's like a 12-part movie or whatever, and one of them is entirely a trial. Uh, there but go. Uh, uh, also a quick quick thing on the other one. Uh, it is from 1910 minutes long.
1: Melies did it.
0: <laughs> but yeah considering that it's made by Melies, it's much more fantastical it's really probably just about joan of Arc, so that he can make cool effects he happen. can make
1: cool castles and stuff yeah yeah <laughs> that was an aspect of it that i i guess i really appreciated and didn't really i didn't know that much about this movie and it was super famous and i knew it had it's sort of like fairly unconventional cinematography for the time you know the actual sort of like story that the movie is telling sort of uh, got to me more than I kind of expected it would.
2: Well, so many of the themes they they you know, they carry forward to today. Themes of female empower, empowerment, trans themes, anti-gender conformity, themes of mental illness, and censorship, and you know, we can definitely relate to these. Not much has changed. Authoritarian uh, rule. Yeah. The patriarchy.
1: The idea that it's not like Joan of Arc wasn't she great? What a what a perfect person. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. Like, she she's was
2: very pious. She's very pious for one, and they're willing to show that. She's not educated.
1: The character Can't as president in the movie is very, um... Has a lot of qualities that are very admirable, but I, I liked how much it was... It did really focus on those moments of internal conflict and of f- fear and of, like, she's not mm-hmm. f- sure of herself. When she... Like, when they ask her something... She doesn't immediately have an answer always, and she has to think about it, and it's like, when she's presented with all these sort of ways that they're trying to kind of, like, coax her into confessing, and, you know, trying to get her to go against her convictions, it's like, she has to think about it, it's like, we're gonna torture you if you don't sign this thing, and she's Mm -hmm. like, hmm do I want to get tortured right now?
2: (laughs) They never did torture. They only ever intimidate her with torture, which I think is how it's at least transcribed um, historically. Mm. Um, I do find it interesting that uh, the stuff that you found interesting about this movie, I think is what Ryer found interesting about Joan of Arc. He did, to his credit, spend about a year um, reading those documents uh, and spending time where she spent time for that trial and just immersed himself in any recorded history there was of it before putting this film together you know um so i do think it's it's nice that you also have a lot of these like she she is finally coerced to sign to sign the letter you know and i do believe in actuality it's presented as only momentary in the film i believe they cut off her hair they sweep it up they kind of juxtapose that with the skull and then in real life i think i think that period of time was about three days it showed that once they gave her some like water she was able to be like, oh wait, no. Let me just shake off this survival instinct real quick and yeah, go ahead burn me alive.
0: Uh, earlier you brought up the uh, the set and mm-hmm. we've got, kind of been touching on this also, that this movie was basically entirely lifted straight from transcripts of mm-hmm. this trial.
2: We even set it up in the narrative, like first and foremost. They, yeah. they show a man with hands. I'm like, is Dreyer setting himself up as the narrator right now? Like literally?
1: kind Yeah, yeah kind it, of.
0: It seems almost like a framing device, but in another way, it's like let me show you how accurate I'm being with yeah. all of this.
1: <laughs> it kind of reminded me of Hexen a little bit, of that sort of like slightly like docudrama,
0: docudrama, and uh, and and Catholic torture, uh, right? That too. That also it had a, it had Hexen. a lot of similarities with Hexen, yeah. yeah.
2: I want to bring up a couple facts that were kind of moving beyond me having a good chance to say them. But I want to drop something real quick um, It has to do with Dreyer and what he saw in the face of Falconetti. And I think it also probably it, it's it's fuel to his decision to the fire that is his decision that was to not allow anyone to have makeup because he initially saw her in uh, Victor Margarete's, uh La Garçon which is a French comedy. It's a play that he had gone to, and he did not like it, did not like her, but for some reason went a second time. And his quote is that he, he felt there was something in her which could be brought out, something he could give, and therefore he could take. Um, if he just, and now I'm paraphrasing, but if he were to just wipe off all the makeup and get behind the facade, all uh, apparently she was a very modern woman, modern actress. She wasn't, she wasn't as young as Joan of Arc. She was 35, I think, in the movie. From the moment he saw her was like, yes, yes, that, but everything different. <laughs> and at some points, I almost felt uncomfortable watching it because I do. I, I, she does most of the heavy lifting and, and I do feel her pain. And I think it's because he was in pain um, making the film. Um, apparently, there are several other anecdotes about mm-hmm. their pensions, you know, Glenn, you had mentioned to me before we would started recording, um, we were talking about how she'd only done a couple of films. I wonder if there was a kinship she might have felt to Joan of Arc uh, that might have drawn her to this. Did you do any reading or hear anything about how she might have wound up accepting in the role?
1: No, I mean, yeah, I knew that she was a theater uh, actor primarily and that this is one of her only, I think there was one other film role that wasn't even very big or notable, which I, I just kind of assumed that she was like, oh, I do theater. I don't do film. It's, it's new and weird and I don't like it. Um, and I can't imagine this experience, you know, changing her mind in that regard. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much her lack of film credits has to do with this movie specifically or if just it just didn't really interest her. But um,
0: yeah, it's interesting you bring up the stage thing, because like the most notable thing about this movie is the subtle, small face acting, which mm-hmm, is the opposite mm-hmm. of what you do on stage. Right. So exactly, She so. she definitely understood the assignment here. Yeah. The challenge. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't, she didn't feel outside of her medium at all. She understood the different elements at play that she had to tell a story. And she, yeah. she, she acted differently than I imagine she did prior.
1: I mean, not just that. I feel like this movie specifically gets held up as an example of like great film acting specifically of like mm-hmm. what is it about cinematic acting that stands out from other forms and like how it's like. This, I feel like, is often held up as, like, one of the best film performances in history, which is, like, I kind of find it hard to argue with, because it is, like, it's very straightforward. It's a lot of shots of her just thinking and sort of processing stuff, not speaking, and it's just that tight close-up of her face for, like, yeah, what, like, 70% of the movie? But it's, like, it is, it, like, distills it down... One thing I think I like about a lot of silent movies that we've been watching is it, like, distills down some of these concepts to, like, very simple, pure forms of, like, this is what film acting is. It's, like, a close-up of someone doing seemingly very little, but expressing so much with it.
2: And it allows, since film is such an allegorical medium, it allows you as the viewer to then put a lot onto their face yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense.
0: There's a good bit of Kuleshov going on in this.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think about the uh, the fact that none of the actors wore makeup is they shot this movie on a different type of film. They shot this on panchromatic film, which exposes a wider, uh, exposes a, a wider spectrum of light. It so it's like colors will show up more. Accurate. It's black and white film, but it still it captures more a wider spectrum.
2: Contrast was a big part of this undertaking as well. Um, yeah. Did you know the whole set was pink, pretty much? Yeah. It's mainly just to distinguish the whites and the grays, you know, that's such a they wanted such a white sky.
1: So I think the reason they shot with panchromatic film was just to be able to expose the faces and all the detail therein, mm-hmm. uh, which they wouldn't be able to do with uh, orthochromatic film, which is uh, most commonly used film up until that point. I think orthochromatic film was already kind of not being made by 1930. Mm-hmm. Um, they switched over pretty quickly because they're like, hey, this this one's better. <laughs>
0: Looks HD. Look at, look
1: at what look at what
2: Carl did.
0: Uh, I'm curious what um what is it that kind of made you watch this movie the second time right after you watched it the first time?
2: Well, honestly, I was I was immediately moved to tears on my first viewing three times maybe. I had sat down not really wanting to watch it because I my attention span's not always great and I felt my I, I was worried I'd be drifting and I was just enraptured by it within 10 minutes, and but since a lot of it is on what's going on with the actor, uh, and since it doesn't preface with Joan of Arc's whole story, I was kind of like, I wanted to see it again with the context of what put her there, and with knowing what was going to happen so I could just kind of better read her emotions. And then uh, my friend Krista was watching it right after I was watching it, because we had tried to watch it together, she had fallen asleep. And then afterwards had going to watch it herself. I was like, I'm just going to sit down and watch this again. And I can't think of another movie that I willingly did that for. I did it for the 2010 Robin Hood, which was a terrible experience. <laughs> that movie is awful, but I'm just, it's a whole different story. But yeah. And I was so thrilled to see it a third time. Honestly, I think I saw it with voices of light each time. Uh, next time I'd like to try to see it with one of the other scores, but um. Mm. I'd like to take a point after us to talk about that some more, how this film was rediscovered and uh, how Voices of Light came to be cultivated for it. Um, Do you know where they found this edit of the film?
1: Yeah. Well, I think we should, if we're talking about how this movie, like the the history of this movie's kind of release and like the different versions of it. And it's like rediscovery. And I think we should start at the beginning which was like, this movie was, you know, came out in 1928, uh, and it was almost immediately, negative was lost in a fire. And so then, Carl Theodore Dreyer was able to recreate the entire movie using alternate takes that weren't used the first time.
2: Thank went to the Swamp.
1: And there's even, like, there's some versions of the movie that have more wide shots in them, mm-hmm. which kind of shows, like, he shot wide shots that show the whole set, but he just didn't use them.
2: You missed the beat there. That er- the the second edit he did with the retakes also burned in fire not long well, after yes, he did. Well, yes, no, it. I was Dang. getting
1: to that. So yeah, he he recreated the entire movie with alternate takes that also burned in a fire <laughs> again almost immediately. But there were still copies sort of floating around that were screened. But they, you know, those were What's the original those cut, were though? volatile. Those were brittle. Some of those got lost in the fifties uh someone took the the re-edited ver the the sort of alternate take version and recut parts of it uh put in a voiceover at the beginning uh took out a lot of the intertitles and put subtitles in uh cut off the side of the frame for the to add the soundtrack in the optical soundtrack which dreyer hated he thought it was terrible there's a great quote from him where he says the editor again with the best intentions has tried to make the film more accessible to the general public by appealing to the public's bad taste.
2: (laughs) Not so many like that.
3: (laughs) And,
1: yeah, fun guy. And then in the 60s, someone cobbled together a version with, like, using both different known versions of it. And that was, for a while, like, the only version of it that existed. And then the original, original cut was rediscovered in 1981, inside a janitor's closet, inside of a mental institution. And no one really knows how it got there, which is great.
2: One other thing I have here, which we, I'll, I'll leave it to you guys whether or not I go over it. I did kind of uh, took some time to read this really lovely essay by Richard Einhorn on uh, the Criterion copy I have. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a written essay talking a little bit about how he came to put together and, and and the the orchestral piece that is voices of light. But I, I like this quote from uh Richard Einhorn, which is Joan of Arc, the illiterate teenage peasant girl who led an army, the Transvestite witch who became a saint, Joan of Arc transgressed them all. It sets the stage for how different she is than everyone else, you know. Mm. And it wasn't until nineteen twenty that she was declared the saint that she is now.
3: Right.
1: Which is like eight years before the movie came out. So that's like yeah, that's a new. recent that's thing cool. that, that Joan of Arc had been like Canonized or whatever as a saint, mm-hmm. um which I do think is kind of interesting context for this movie, where it's like, oh yeah, we're Joan of Arc just got her due. Like let's let's make the sort of like definitive Joan of Arc movie.
2: Yeah, let's think about now now that she's a saint, let's show why the choices she made were so powerful and valuable because she was essentially made into a martyr, and uh, she was okay with that.
1: Or at least the character in the movie is.
2: Or at least, or if it happened as as is, as is portrayed to some extent, a lot of it could be mental illness, you know? I mean, she could be a human who's like, in a moment of clarity, is like, yeah, I don't want to die, so I'll do the horrible thing. I'll do what you're forcing me to do, so as to not die horribly. But then, you know, the voices lift back up. Because that's what, it, I mean, God lived in her head, according to her. You know, that wasn't that's that that is that that part's for certain i think a lot of the people who followed her probably followed her because they bought into that and nowadays uh i don't think she would have certainly wouldn't have walked at 17 years old up to uh well maybe one of our presidents in recent history but i was going to say most presidents in american history aren't going to give her an army um they're probably going to put her in a box um ooh, was joan of arc in the asylum where they found the copy
1: i mean it was it was in norway so i don't think so
2: time travel to norway so she was 17 when she got that that army all told by the time she was being burned alive she was only 19 um so she led a very short short life and i feel that while i'm watching this movie you know i felt that 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 actor felt connected to that death um he did such a good job i have it there's nothing that could really be extrapolated out of this, but, like, three times in my notes, in those big letters, it says "her EYES!
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I feel like we'd be remiss not to at least mention that once.
1: Yeah, the amount of expression that she's able to give through eyes, and then not in a sort of, like, overly kind of, you know, silent movie dramatic way, and mm-hmm. just sort of like, in a really kind of uh, I hesitate to use the word soulful, but I feel like it applies here, you know?
0: Yeah, it's, it's oh, it definitely does. quite nuanced um, and subtle acting for a silent yeah. movie.
1: <laughs> this movie does a lot of cool stuff with eye lines, too, in terms of just, like, where people are looking and when, um, because it's almost all close-ups. Like, there's a lot of stuff of people looking between each other. I think even the repetition of that does kind of strengthen some of the, uh, just the, the points this movie's trying to make. Like, there's so much of the judges just kind of, like, giving each other these like kind of snide looks and it's like their their disrespect for her is so palpable without them saying anything it's purely just through their body language and how they are looking at each other
2: that guy who looks like one of the koopa bombs with the little yeah, pointy hair he's
1: got the little the little devil Two horn little triangles <laughs> I've got. A,
2: i might have a drawing that doesn't matter <laughs>
1: <laughs> i also noted the devil horn hair guy <laughs> But and there's also there's the there's the one guy that is sort of like trying to play a kind of good cop in the interrogation is trying to kind of
2: convince Not the her young to... man, you know, what I mean, you mean the older guy who's the like, oh, guy. we'll all be yeah. over soon. Yeah, yeah.
1: And where she keeps looking to him while they're asking her questions, and he's giving her a nod or a shake. and He's trying to get her to say what the court wants to hear. Mm-hmm. But it's I like... wonder if
2: he was supposed to be her like her lawyer, essentially, you know, her representation Medi-
1: medieval lawyer, maybe. <laughs> But there's so much of just that thing of they're looking back at each other and through their eye line yeah. that is um this movie gets eye lines really well like mm. it 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 does a lot with with that just that one very simple two close-ups and a cut um this whole movie i feel like is a, re- a great example of like less is more of it. mm. it's like it is kind of so minimalist in its visuals and its set design and all that stuff and it's like the simplicity of all that i feel like really kind of creates a greater whole
2: i wouldn't say it's simplistic until it's not some of the camera some of the shots they did in this i hadn't seen in anything that had been made earlier than this uh maybe right. you guys could easily tell me i'm wrong but there's one shot that they go to a couple times which is the camera's kind of up above and it's upside down looking backwards and then it kind of Kind of swings so it's facing down and moves at a hundred and eighty degree angle so it's looking forward. Yeah, does that make sense? Did I describe yeah. that okay?
1: I I remember that exact shot you're talking about. Um, I don't yeah, know. and they go to
2: it once or twice later during the optimizing.
1: I mean, I don't, I can't remember if we've seen that exact shot in anything before. I don't think this movie's necessarily doing anything that hasn't ever been done, but I think its entire kind of like visual style is something that feels very. New and different for this time period. Um, A lot of really low angles is something Mm -hmm. that isn't super common, making them Um, feel
2: very much imposing of their will upon her for the whole movie.
1: uh, They they would dig holes in the ground or the the floor of the set and just like stick it down in the hole to get like these super low angles,
2: make them get even lower. Yeah, it
1: feels very. I think the visuals of it do feel very ahead of its time, even if it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily doing anything. There's nothing in it that's, like, that crazy, but it's, like... What about the
2: baby swing shots? There's a couple shots where the camera's kind of... You're going to have to cut to me to orchestrate this, but... Oh, yeah. ...kind of moves in and out, but, like, at that same little, like, slow bop that a stroller would have. One that comes into mind is... I don't... This is the only part of the movie I didn't really get. But someone... Maybe it's a soldier who, would like, turn coat, but someone's dropping, like, maces out a window. Yeah, and it's swinging from hand in the window to hand on the ground, hand on the window to hand yeah. on the ground. And that was, like, the second or third time they did what it felt like uh, they set the camera on a fucking, like, one of the baby swings that sits yeah. in a doorway. Yeah. It feels
1: like that that is part of, like, a greater movement that is kind of happening in the back half of the 20s of, like... Lots uh, of inventive the, camera movement. The unchained camera, mm-hmm. I think, is yeah. uh, yes. whoever shot Last Laugh called it. Um, or oh, it looked
2: like a camera dangling on chains, if anything.
1: Yeah. Which it might have been. I mean, yeah, there was the cool swing shot in Wings. Murnau loves moving his camera around. There's the there's the crazy crane shot in Wings. Um,
0: I think what it is is that uh, the parts are not new, but the sum is.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, the guy definitely, he didn't just know a lot of the tools that were available through the craft at the time, but he knew exactly how he could use that mm-hmm. to to emphasize certain emotional beats in his story. Though I say all this, we all watched it with Voices of Light, and I wonder how much that, that score is so wonderful. I wonder how much of the lifting in that kind of swell that you feel during the uprising is done by the music. Because I do think it, it played a big hand mm-hmm. along with the editing and making me feel like rah-rah at the end of this movie. I don't know, but what about you guys?
1: There were probably a couple of places where that score felt a little a little out of place to me, where right. it was just a lot of like Latin chanting. And I was like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I need this right now. Um, that's more of a preference thing than anything. But um, yeah, I'm I'm very curious to s- just see what this movie would be like with a different score, and how yeah. much that would affect it. We haven't really done a lot of that of like watching. I think me and you, Chris, have watched different scores for certain movies, but it's like we've never done a real like compare and contrast type of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, which might be good for a a side thing to do. I was talking when mm-hmm. we when we watched the general <laughs> we'll watch about this, we'll how we'll watch
1: this movie with eight different scores.
0: <laughs> I mean, I I stitched together something like eight different scores for a trip to the moon from multiple different releases onto the same video file, so I could have it all in one thing and just pick the different channels. Uh, which is a way too involved of a process, but. <laughs> Uh, there there are definitely times we've talked about where we're like, which for the on the general, for example, where I was listening mm-hmm. to one soundtrack and I was like, I hate this. Actually, <laughs> I had to switch over to the other one. That is one of the the great things about silent movies, in some ways, is that they are a canvas for different people's uh, interpretations of them musically, and um, that can have a huge impact on the audience and how how they end up feeling about a movie. So, it is it is interesting to think about how the only canonical version of the movie is the visual one uh Mm -hmm. but uh we can have our own kind of preferences of canonical score and all that kind of thing
1: and thankfully this movie is like famous enough and is well preserved enough that it's like we have that option too that it's like it's been released with all these different scores that are all in good quality there was such a long time watching movies from like the 1900s 1910s where they were in like such terrible quality with like god-awful music put over put over them that it's like yeah. now to watch stuff that's like been really well preserved and like is crisp and hd it's like oh this is this is wonderful this is movies
2: i I have heard that the original scores were very simple and not very much of their time i.e not great for this movie and one voices of light is i don't think was initially done to even be a score i believe it was done just as kind of music inspired by the movie which they later cut to the movie Mm. um which i find is kind of interesting is that uh, accurate
1: a, a music from an inspired so. by album
2: like, yes like the <laughs> yeah basically soundtrack. yeah which it might seen. be why some of the chanting doesn't necessarily plug and play where where they tried to make it because it, they are it, it wasn't, wasn't necessarily for that the
1: score per se as much as yeah representative of the movie or inspired
2: by it. and yeah. and i feel i should point out the performers i believe on the version we heard because this was from i believe in live performance in 95 it's uh vocal group known as Anonymous 4 on the DVD but the soloist uh, Susan Naruki part of it um Radio Netherlands uh Philharmonic and Choir are a part of it and it was conducted by Stephen uh, Mercurio um in case any of these people since it happened in the 90s come upon this episode uh excellent work I guess Einhorn uh discovered it in January of 88 while at the MoMA uh he had seen it at a screening and was like this is awesome and uh someone had approached him about potentially writing music mm-hmm. to accompany it and i believe he wrote it like pretty quickly like within like a week he was writing music for that for that movie in 88 but it wasn't first presented until february of 94 uh the north at the northampton arts council and it was the arcadia players conducted by margaret Irwin brandon and i think pretty much since then it's been seen as like this is what we go to like more often than not yeah but yeah i wanted to i wanted to highlight that because it does. It 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 adds a lot. It really does add a lot. I mean, it, go figure. Sound and movies. Uh, I think there might be a version on my DVD release that is truly silent.
0: Yeah, you just press the mute button. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, sound and movies. That's. Uh, I guess it's not a huge theme of this episode because we're still watching all silent movies. But it is like <laughs> a recurring. It's like we're in the moment now where it's like, yeah, we we gotta kind of upend. The entire business and the entire like art of it to a degree it's pretty uh seismic shift
2: really is since this is so there's so much of this is just close-ups there are some there's some visual imagery that really sticks out to me after Mm. seeing this like i can just mind's eyes i stare off into the distance there's easily 20 shots that are like like photographs in my head so i was curious if there was anything like that that stood out in this movie to either of you guys See if any of them match what I have jotted down in front of me.
1: I mean, for sure. The opening shot that like, Slow Dolly shot across the sort of
2: the the, sort of the army of the door, when it's going right? left to right.
1: Yeah. I, th- I mean, there's a shot right at the end where uh, as the sort of like uprising is happening and Joan is burning and you kind of see her body like silhouetted in the flames. Yeah. That was very striking to me.
2: She went up. That I feel like that must have been very graphic for the time as well as just the interpretation of it's, her death itself.
1: It's it's up there. Like it's not. There's been some like somewhat graphic stuff, but this is definitely in terms of like the the visceral feeling this movie gives is much stronger than most things that we've been watching. I mean, there's also the bloodletting scene. Well, that's just a real person's arm. It's not. It's not uh Falconetti's arm. It would think it was an extra that they. But that's. They really Wait, do- that's a
2: human arm. A that's human not a problem. No, that's a human Jesus. arm with no
1: blood coming out.
2: That's not good. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's, and it's yeah, it made me squirm like many horror movies do not because it's like I don't want to. <laughs> um. Any other? I was giggling. Also, I
2: have problems.
1: Yeah, it's like it doesn't like with the rest of the movie, it does a lot with the level. I think
2: it does. It really does. What about you, Chris?
0: Um. You know. Th- this is. Uh kind of the reason why i had glenn on this podcast in the beginning and why it's useful to have you on the podcast in the beginning is because as not a filmmaker uh i feel like uh, i have less of a good memory for for shots for individual shots i just kind of like take it all in unless it's something Mm -hmm. that's really making a point of itself though i did i i did in my notes say lots of cool camera motion or faces moving in the frame love the close-ups and the close ups are so close that you can see her saying, We. Oui. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, certainly that image toward the end. Uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, they do the same types of shots a lot, but a lot of those shots taken as individuals of her face and just the emotion. And, like, the depth of color, quote-unquote, in in the shot. Like, that all was quite striking. And, yeah. Also, like, seeing her very clearly say yes at one point in French made me think about how it would be good to go to a lot of silent movies or, like, have have someone who knows how to lip-read come to silent movies and see, like, what they might
3: have actually been (laughs) saying.
1: I'm always so curious about that, of how much this actual... Dialogue that they were speaking on set matches the intertitles or not? Yeah. Because I imagine a right. lot of time it doesn't. Because I think like a lot of the time an they didn't even have written dialogue. They were just like, uh, go talk. Yeah. And I'm so go be in curious character, yeah. if they're just like saying bullshit or not, or like what they're talking about. Like what the. Hey, gobbledy goobbledy
2: dabbledy Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Like I don't think it's that, but it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm very. Yeah, I don't know anyone as far as I know that can lip read, but that would be a fascinating thing to do yeah
2: yeah uh, absolutely i was gonna say does anyone know what i mean when i say not once but twice did she uh find kinship with belloc
1: oh the fly
2: like, like <laughs> twice once it lands on her <laughs> eye and she doesn't swat it until it's like crawling into her fucking eyeball Which sorry even that can we swear I... on this no yeah told you sure. <laughs> uh...
0: we're, we're
1: the bad boys of silent film yeah. The, the fly thing, I, I even wondered if that was intentional or not. I was like, was it just, like, were there just flies on the set, or was that a thing where right. Carl Dreyer was like, and now and now flies?
2: Well, it did happen another time, and it felt more uh, purposeful, which yeah. was right after the bloodletting. letting, um, the old man comes in and says to her, he goes, and the church always welcomes the misguided lamb, and then she tries to hold his hand, and he just kind of drops it, uh, like, mm, don't touch me slimy slimy moment but right after that another fly landed on her yeah. so it uh stuck happy, out to me i,
1: I imagine it's by a happy accident but um I don't
0: know. yeah
2: i think i think it's a happy accident in that the set was icky yeah or uh, maybe they
0: used the take <laughs> that there wasn't a fly and they're like the fly one's the only one we got left now
1: well no this the one that we watched is all the original uh first choice takes i
0: thought it was the second choice.
2: yeah w- no, the second one burned up too, but they found in the institution the original cut oh, somehow. Yeah. I thought it they was have the no idea where it came from. Found. No, the, the one in okay, Norway was no. the
1: original original cut. Gotcha. Uh, with yeah. no with no censorship edits, no nothing. It was just like somehow pure... and in
2: good shape too. Yeah.
1: It's like the the perfect storm. It's like no, this is exactly what we wanted to find. So cool.
0: Every time I see a reel of random film, I wonder, like, is this something Is that lost? what it is? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like,
1: is this, is this the murnau Jacqueline Hyde movie?
0: Uh, the, the day before yesterday, I just went to, uh, I just drove three and a half hours uh, each direction to go and pick up um, about 50 film prints from the basement of the previous tech director of the Telluride Film Festival uh he was donating them and he had like 50 50 or so movies plus a bunch of just like random reels of stuff and short cartoons and everything like that it was a very long day of loading thousands of pounds of film into trucks uh but you always wonder if like in one of those basements like you're gonna find something that no one has ever seen before
3: that's Event Horizon the story. Director's Cut,
2: Event Horizon Director's Cut. No, I'm that, sorry. I'm right,
1: the story isn't like, oh, we found this in like a lab somewhere. It's always like, oh, no, this was under so someone's and So's floor.
2: closet, yard sale. Yeah. yeah. This stuff, was like yeah.
1: inside a toilet somewhere, and then it's like... Right oh, the no, back of the toilet. Yeah. It. So, yeah, everyone check your toilets. There might be some old silent movie prints in
2: there. <laughs> a couple moments I want to point out. I'm almost, believe it or not, got through all these notes. I went, I had I have problems. But, um... No, I went you are,
0: you are, you're showing us up right now, because... <laughs> you're so
2: much more prepared than we ever are, so this is great. Uh, you're, you still have to edit through my babble, so, uh, you know. It's you're doing great. going in. Uh, there's a lot of spitting. I wanted to point out the spitting. <laughs> they spit on her all the time. The bug, before I get away from the fly, I'm gonna go ahead and say it's intentional, because, one, two, we got two fly beats. The third beat is a maggot in the eye socket of the skull, When they dig up the bones, and that's the beat that makes her from momentarily cave. And she's been having the fly land in her eye, land in her eye, land in her eye, and then to see that and imagine that as her the fly birthing off of her death, she couldn't take it. The maggot in the
1: eye, saw, you're. I mean, wow. If that's intentional, that's brilliant. If it's unintentional, it's somehow even more brilliant. But that's the thing. It might not. That might have been something he found in the edit. You know what I mean? No, it
2: might be. But if it if it's in the edit. Who cares? It's it's put. Right. I think it's in. It's in the regardless movie. of whether it happened pre, post, or in yeah. production. That was a decision, and I think it was a brilliant one. Um, and and those kind of details, I I wouldn't have caught that if I didn't have notes on the third watch. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I want to keep going back to this movie. There's always ways to tie these shots together. This movie is structured very beautifully in in threes in a lot of spots. You know, like mm. very, very much foreshadowed imagery. Um, I also think it was intentional that the moment that made her snap back to reality is not just her crown on the ground but it's her hair being swept up after shaved from her head the hair is dead but it grows back in its place you know what i mean and that mm. that imagery and juxtaposition to all the bones a much more beautiful side of human decomposition i think made it easier for her to no, no, I know what I have to do. So that was another image of just sweeping with the very, the triangle they used as like a duck pan. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a very nice shot as well, even if it was less, it's less going on. It's literally hair getting swept off the ground, but it meant, felt like it meant so much. I didn't feel like there was a wasted cutaway. Um, they did a lot also to emphasize her point of view throughout the movie. You had the first example of the baby swing shot was on the main judge, and it was kind of going in and out of his face. Yeah. And it was kind of, while she was starting to, you can imagine, feel nauseous getting that circle of repetitive questions around her um, as they're just trying to get her to talk herself into guilt. Um, and then uh, there's a few others. There's the camera moving in to the, the guy spying through the keyhole.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you
2: remember this? That stands out in my mind. Um, the spinning point of view. When all the judges are in the room with her and she realizes she can't get a final sacrament and she decides that I'm not sent from Satan, you're sent from Satan, that's another example. And uh, the most common one, I think, is you have a lot of examples of framing with the head in the lower third of the frame with a lot of extra headspace behind them that's either showing maybe a cross on the wall or what what have you. And I to me, it expressed a sort of almost dissociation that she was feeling whereas she couldn't meet these people in their eyes, you know. Or maybe she was lost by the grandeur of the situation. Even down there, you know, looking up and giving them all that emphasis, she was looking kind of past them. They did a lot of point of view in this that I can't remember seeing in other earlier movies I'd seen. So I guess that's another question I wanted to ask you guys, is how common was point of view at this point in feature film? And were, were a lot of these kind of like, movements that were meant to express feeling rather than actual vision, was that kind of seen as avant-garde at the time? It, that out, I mean, outside of the rag, It
1: probably was seen as avant-garde somewhat, but it's not... I wouldn't say it's uncommon. I think especially in... I think the American movies are probably a little bit more simplistic. I don't want to put them down because there's been a lot of really good American stuff in the last few years of movies. But, um, yeah, I don't think any of those things are yeah new ideas but they're they're being used really effectively here. Yeah, I mean absolutely PO, I are. almost feel like the very idea of a close up started as a POV shot and it was like a whole gimmick that they'd build a whole movie around. <laughs> like there were all of the looking yeah. through keyhole movies, there were all the like what is seen in the telescope movies and it's like ooh <laughs> look over here it's a dog look over here it's a baby. <laughs> wonderful
2: um and there's a lot of brilliant intercutting that's my that's that's the last big thought i have as far as the cinematography is concerned you know where she's giving her her last sacrament and she's with that young priest who kind of as the movie goes it seems starts to feel bad for Mm her it's intercut with these awesome overheads of the military um, people prepping the execution all the religious imagery of the sacrament the the cross you know you have all these young boys lining up ready to take the place of these judges when they Come of age, and all of that's intercut with a man playing around on stilts, and I love that. What a what a commentary on the on all the like practice of religion. You know, it's all yeah. this big. We
1: need to have we need to cut to a, a, a carnival for parts of it. Yeah,
2: there were some contortionists and stuff. At one point, he's like, "I just want to film this carnival yeah. for three minutes. Big, Is that okay?" Big,
1: big year for carnivals. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> Is that true? Why do you say that?
1: Well, because I mean, the other movies that. We talked about in this episode the circus uh the um man who laughs uh, man who laughs there's a lot of carnival Mm. stuff is there another one
2: i think there is i just got here so (laughs) um
1: i feel like there was some more carnival stuff but yeah that was like a weird just for some reason all the movies that we chose to watch for this year have a lot of carnival stuff in them
2: carnivals are fun we all like carnivals and then i i want to end it on her her burning Just the 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 final thoughts of that Mm. so painful and I'm glad they opted to show it as much as they did the imagery with her looking up towards the cross the birds the cross getting ripped from her arms everything about that it was hard not to cry the third time I watched it mm. uh, it moved me I wish I was able to come here with more poignant allegory regarding that imagery at the end I don't have it but it was something and uh everything about what she was going through you can attach so many Themes of struggle, particularly people in weak positions, to this character. It's the kind of, it's a rare example of a film from this time that I would recommend to nearly everybody, mm. even if I might preface that you might not like it because of what it is. Um, I think it'll surprise most people. And I especially think it's a, a strong film for a young person who is a woman or who is bullied, picked on, a, a person, um, an LGBTQ person. Might you might find a lot of support and kinship with someone like Joan of Arc as she's interpreted in this film. Again, it reminded me of Last Temptation of Christ, wherein a lot of Christians were afraid that Jesus's doubt and fears in that movie would somehow detract from the image of of him as their savior. When really, those kind of things, I think, uh, you know, they 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 help feed the humanity in these people, these characters, however you want to view it that allows for generations and generations to connect and relate. Really refreshing to see a character like that treated like this, and even more refreshing to see it happening, the time in which it was happening, even if it did come from a man who may have been kind of toxic. I don't know. I wasn't there. seems so. But um just wanted to say also her name one more time, Renée Jean Falconetti, or Maria Falconetti, or as she's credited, I think just Mel Falconetti.
1: Mademoiselle Falconetti
2: what a what a masterpiece man what a what a master class of acting um get out while the getting's good maybe like there's no topping that performance maybe that's why she didn't go back to movies because <laughs>
3: right. they're gonna
2: talk about this in 100 I won. years i, man, did it, I guys, win movies
1: I, I did the best performance i can just hang it up now
2: i won the movies yeah i won the movies.
1: <laughs> i don't know if we're gonna uh find a better spot to go out on than that
2: i do have yeah. one question Rudolph Mal- Rudolf Maté, who was the cinematographer, uh, he went on to shoot tons and tons of films um, and directed even more, and I wasn't sure if you guys were familiar.
1: No, nope. <laughs> uh, tons tons of people that we have come up like been exposed to doing the show that uh, later learned like, oh, they were incredibly important and like did all this stuff. The guy who I'm completely blanking on his name, you know, shame on me. The cinematographer for Last Laugh also shot the pilot for I Love Lucy, and is therefore kind of responsible for, like, cinematic language, like, developing uh, cinematic language, language in the 20s, and, like, what movies look like, <laughs> and then wow. went to television and basically set the standard for what the television sitcom. looks yeah. like also. yeah, It's crazy.
2: Wow, that's nuts. What's his name? I forget. Oh, uh, well, we gotta we'll, figure that we'll, one we'll out. We'll
1: splice it in using a computer voice. Right.
2: This is also just for the, for the Little Beats film, written by Joseph DelTel, who wrote it, with Carl T. H. Dreyer, and it was edited by Marguerite Bong, And a hell of a job by Marguerite. I'm um, imagining great that's the original original yeah. editor. Um, I don't know how much editing goes into a restoration process of a film like this. I imagine not much.
1: I think if they can get away with it, none. Yeah, that's what you'd hope. They, they really try to keep, preserve as much of the original editing as possible. Carl Freund... It's his name
2: oh the man who who uh what do you call it the man
1: who invented uh movie language yeah (laughs) yeah he didn't but uh he's uh definitely an important uh
0: oh wow he did the golem too
1: yeah see what i mean like you look into what he's worked on and it's like oh my god he did everything (laughs) um i'm so glad they were able to have someone as passionate about this movie talk about it the the passion of cody jackson (laughs) Exactly. That'll be the name of this episode.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, and thank you again, Cody, for joining us on this episode. It was really great to hear hear what you had to say about what's this movie? <laughs> Joan, of <Arc.
3: laughs>
2: uh, of Joan of Arc. Passion of Joan thank of Arc. Thank you seriously for having me. Thank you so much. This was my first podcast, if you didn't know. And uh, everyone keep an eye out for the movie Mole. It's coming any time now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: Glenn gets that.
0: <laughs> and again, you completely uh, made us look like fools uh, uh, on your first podcast appearance <laughs> and are <our>, like 35th. <laughs> my my notes are always
1: just dumb jokes. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: uh, hopefully if you ever have me again, I can be a little bit uh, more cohesive in my order of my battle. Uh but it meant a lot that you guys you guys gave me the time of day, so thank you. Yeah, of
0: course, yeah. Uh, and thanks everybody for listening. We appreciate uh, everybody who subscribes and and uh, listens on YouTube and at pa- uh, Patreon and uh, and podcasts.
3: <laughs> no, <Man. laughs>
0: but yeah, and you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we post some stuff there every once in a while. Follow us on Twitter and uh subscribe if you haven't already but you have because you've listened to a whole bunch of podcasts so that'll be about it thanks for joining us cody and glenn i'll see you next year cody i'll see wait, you wait, another time wait
1: favorite movie of 1928 oh god
2: <laughs> oh passion of joan of arc definitely uh, that's the only one i've seen
0: <laughs> I always, i always forget to do the favorites glenn go ahead what's your favorite
1: my favorite was uh, The Cameraman. I loved it. It's great. We talked about it already.
0: I would say uh, that Spies might have been my favorite. Mm. It, uh, there are parts where it drags a bit, but like it is such a uh, a rollicking film. Yeah. There's so much just wild stuff that happens in it. It, uh, it, it seems like it is a prototype for all spy movies to come.
1: Indeed yeah
0: uh okay now that we have done that part that i always forget about i will see y'all next year i'll see you next year glenn i'll see you next time you're
3: on cody (laughs) see you next year sayonara see you later